0: Welcome to the Recappery, the History Chicks Media Recap Emporium.
1: Today we continue our coverage of Masterpiece's adaptation of Louisa May Alcott's Little Women. This is episode two. The cold open sets a beautiful shot. There's an open door with a white curtain. It's the laundry day and Amy is on a hunt.
0: Okay, number one. Amy needs to stop shrieking through the house for real. This is what you hear. (sighs) Joe, Joe, Beth, Beth, Matt. It's like, oh my God. The only thing that gets me in this house is that. And I'm always like, please come in the room where I am. If you are lacking toilet paper, Mm-hmm. Fine, shriek your head off. Uh, <laughs> otherwise, no. Oh my gosh. Did that not bother you? It bothered oh, me. Oh, crazy. Well, she's, I mean, we've already
1: decided that she is extraordinarily spoiled in this family and gets away with everything. And oh, yes, she's evil. So it annoyed me, but it didn't surprise me. She's just skipping through the house because, you know, she's free. Marmy isn't there. Papa's gone. Well, yeah.
0: now I do like the peak we're getting at the 1860s underwear. But <laughs> would she be traipsing around in the admittedly full coverage altogether if Marmy was there? I'm going to guess that would be a no. Yes, I
1: agree. I thought exactly the same thing. I'm like, well, that's an interesting outfit she's wearing. And then I realized what I was looking
0: at. I was like, oh, oh, my. I will say that Amy is a natural with that power pose. Hundreds of years before yoga (laughs) and the rise of the power pose, Amy has got a hold of it. Yeah, she's got a
1: lot of uh, attitude, I guess is a good way to put it.
0: At first, I was wondering, who's
1: out there doing the laundry? Because I'm like, oh, that's nice. Everybody's doing their chores. But then I'm like, no, it's Hannah. It's Hannah out there doing the laundry, right?
0: Well, although I think Meg was charged with laundry. And so perhaps Meg has been helping, although she's not helping, today.
1: (laughs) Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Because we know where she is. Yeah. So I'm like, oh, who is that? But it was Hannah. And
0: do people nowadays have a wash day or do we just do it all the time? That's how I do it. Well, my whole neighborhood on Saturday night is full of the luscious smell of steaks on the grill. And on Sunday, it's the virtuous smell of dryer sheets.
1: <laughs> so <laughs> oh I would goodness. say yes. Yes. All right. Well, I'm a little spoiled. My husband puts the first load of laundry in before he goes to work every day.
0: You know what I would be most worried about in this house? And I'm talking every age of person that lives in this house. Nobody checks pockets. The number of times that I have successfully gotten a Sharpie cleanly out of the dryer is kind of alarming to me. Ooh, Sharpies Ooh. make it, by the way. And, you know, restaurant guys always have a Sharpie because there's actually a special Sharpie pocket in their chef coat. And Sharpies will make it all the way through the wash. Is your jet jar filled with Sharpies? No, it's full of little other things. I check pockets. That's my jar of pocket checking stuff, but nobody else checks pockets. I see. It's so, a beautiful jar, by the way.
1: It looks like it looks artistic. It's this huge jar and she's been collecting stuff out of pockets in the laundry for years. <laughs> it looks like one of those um, find the items pictures. What were those called? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, There's yeah. like find the block, find the army man. Yeah,
0: it looks fake. It's so real. (laughs) Well, we'll post a picture of that. I really love that jar, and I'm so glad I did it. Well, Joe is admittedly surrounded by a little more chaos than usual. She's writing a letter that is possibly deceptive to Marmee that includes the sentence, I wish you could see how well your troop of little women are marshalling themselves. It would do Father more good than all the medicine in Washington. Well, you know, that's probably true because of 19th century medicine, but I'm not 100% sure he would... (laughs) approve of all the detritus. The kitchen is a little out of control.
1: Yeah. This particular scene that's intercut with Marmy taking care of father at the hospital in Washington and also Beth doing the dishes. So like I said, everybody has a job except for Amy, who is apparently her job is to be annoying.
0: <laughs> that's true. We do see how bad it is. Actually, father is raging with fever up there in Washington, D.C. And Marmy sure looks like there's no hope. Her face is defeated. Yeah, I don't know that we've given
1: Emily Watson enough credit for her role here. You know, she looks exhausted. I think she can do things with her face without saying any words, which I, to me is a sign of a very good actress.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Back at home, this Beth that we have going with this adaptation, is a little more human than Claire Danes' Beth. She's doing the Beth thing of being good and industrious. She's literally doing the dishes. I love the fact that she is just the enjoyer of simple pleasures, like the kittens, like the soap bubbles flying into the air. But she is not an angel. But she's also a real sister who calls Amy on her crap.
1: Yeah, Amy is just pushing things. And she says, well, mother said I could start doing my own hair. But then Beth reminds her that Marmy also said that she wasn't to curl her hair on the weekdays. And all snotty Amy is like, well, Marmy isn't here. You
0: like, know what that what? is? You're not the boss of me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) was that in the uh subtitles because i i didn't have subtitles on (laughs) no that's just the uh 1860 to modern day translation and you know okay so i know that we look around and there's all this mess everywhere but hannah and beth have eight hours to get it under control and i just think that's just life happening and we're catching a snapshot of it hannah Mm -hmm. hasn't done the kitchen because she's outside pegging out the wash i think that the letter is less of a lie than we're to believe. I mean, even my husband lives in his own words, like a bachelor, (laughs) large (laughs) amounts of unfortunate mess. And then he tidies it up in a great hurry right before I get home. And I think that's okay.
1: Yeah. But you know what, I think in the context of this particular show, I think that her saying you wouldn't find a single fault in us, I promise is just foreshadowing for the rest of the episode.
0: I see. I see. That's good.
1: It's like don't make her worry and I we hear that later on. We don't want to worry her and give her anxiety unnecessarily. So, that's how I viewed that particular why I thought she was writing a letter of lies.
0: Well, you're not necessarily going to be like, seriously, she is irritating me about these curling papers. You know, you're not going (laughs) to.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It was good to see real life, though, and not polished up. Again, like the wardrobe, you know. This Mm -hmm. is probably how people really lived, and it wasn't as sparkling and sparse and tidy as (laughs) Anne with an E. (laughs) So we come to our opening sequence. I want to say... Something about this opening sequence, I loved their choice of music. It's called Danse Caribe by Andrew Bird. It's just happy. It's a watercolor animation. There's four flowers, and you need to notice these flowers because they're going to come up later. Maybe not in this episode. There's a sunflower. There's a rose. There's bachelor buttons. And what I think is a poppy, and they grow and they rise up towards the sky, and then they turn into birds. First, there are four. And then there are three.
0: Put your hands over your ears and go la 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 la. (laughs) That's all we need to say about that right now. (laughs) Because
1: I was like, oh, this is really cool. And then I watched it really slow. I'm like, oh my gosh, what is going on there? But I thought it was beautiful. I thought it set the tone for the show. It was very simple and... It's really pretty.
0: The uh, studio, the animation, which is called the Peter Anderson Studio, also did the titles for Doctor Who from season seven on and for Sherlock. Now I have the Doctor Who music playing in my head because every single season of Doctor Who, the beginning,
1: they have a theme and a look and then it's always different every every season. OK. Amy and the curling papers are with Meg, who's planning a sleepover at Annie Moffitt's to attend her first ball. And Amy kind of plays the devil on her shoulder.
0: So we get another Amy malapropism. They're kind of dribbling them out like a little like, oh, here you go, breadcrumbs for you. Marmee told you to be indigent about your work. How can you be indigent if you're abandoning your poor pupils to go gallivanting off at someone's mansion? So she means diligent.
1: It was almost like they heard you say it last time, or they went and looked at the script. They're like, "Oh, there's only one of those. We need to put more because there's several in this particular episode, and there wasn't the last time." Also, when did Sally Moffat's name change to Annie?
0: There's an Annie Moffat. It's one of her sisters. Okay, all right, I'll
1: accept that because I was like, "Wait, isn't it Sally?" Okay, I'll be, I will be wrong in this one. I'll be happy for that because I was like, "Why would they change her name?"
0: (laughs) Okay, so Meg is so excited. She is almost beside herself. There is going to be a ball. This is the first time anyone's ever been to a a ball, which seems more fancy than, I mean, they've just been at a dance for New Year's Eve. But, you know, I guess it's different when it's um, formal versus not formal. There's probably a supper. You know, it's um, a whole nother level of thing. Amy is a little bit dismissive of her wardrobe. She is
1: extraordinarily dismissive. She picks up Meg's dress and she says, this shabby old
0: tarlatan. It's like, what? It looks really pretty. (laughs) Although, is that tarlatan? Because I'm so confused. Tarlatan is cheesecloth and it's only in solid colors. So I think there must be some kind of printed dress underneath there with, as an illusion, a layer of tarlatan over it. Mm hmm.
1: Yeah, I stopped and paused on the same thing because in my head, tarlatans are white and any color on them is from the detail, the trim work or any embroidery. And that really did look like a pattern, like a fabric pattern on that particular dress. But
0: anyway, you're not going to be able to print flowers on cheesecloth.
1: No, because tarlatan, if you're not aware, it's a very loose weave uh, cotton fabric. It was used to make summer dresses, not as loose as, say, Marie Antoinette's and her HEMO dresses because this was able to be stiffened a little bit.
0: And you're not supposed to get your charlatan dresses wet, i.e. they don't really wash very well because you wash it or it rains on you and the starch comes out. And it shrinks because it's cotton.
1: <laughs> you know, I was looking around for Tarleton dresses and I stumbled across Civil War com. talk about your niche store. I was so impressed and their prices were really reasonable. I'll link you up, but it was like $75 to $250 for a ball gown or a dress, a Civil War era dress. I was shocked. I
0: guarantee you that does not include the petticoats. That does Mm -mm. not include the corset or the corset Uh -uh. cover Uh -uh. or the pantalettes. No. You could be faced with a large outlay in invisible clothing. Yeah, (laughs) that's true. But I was still surprised. I mean, 75 bucks for the dress? I mean, it is just like the outer dress because there's so many clothes underneath, but I was impressed. So Amy Tamsmeg with the silk dress, the violet one that Marmee has wrapped in some kind of special paper, probably from her own debutante days, maybe. But it is out of style now, frankly. If it's from the 1840s, though, it may not be that different. Not that different to my modern eyes. The skirts are constructed a little differently, maybe a little narrower. And the 1860s had hoops. But, you know, it might be the difference between, say, the 70s bell bottoms. Good. And 90s bell bottoms. Bad. (sighs) (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> so i get it i get it like subtle things mm-hmm. make the difference the kind of lace and maybe meg's not quite the right size you know there was a seriously ugly decade right in the middle by the way i think people are like oh 1850s uh let's go back to the way it used to be so, <laughs> so there's i mean the 1860 1840 dresses are a lot more similar but people would be able to tell if you didn't re- do it you know so i get mm-hmm. it i get it and there's not time to remake it but I do think Amy is just stirring up trouble dangling the thought of that dress in front of Meg, though. Like, she is she trying to get Meg in trouble? Oh,
1: absolutely. She wants her to get that dress. And maybe it's because Amy would want to get her hands on it, too, some way. But even though Meg was like, no, there's not enough time and it's implied permission for me to overdo that dress, then Amy's just like, oh, right. Well, you know what it's like to be socially disadvantaged. <laughs>
0: but that is the most manipulative she wants money for pickled limes and she's already touched up her mother <laughs> if you recall from episode one and now she's on to meg and that was dirty pool mm-hmm. and she was like i know you know what it feels like to be socially disadvantaged
1: and then Meg, she gives it to her. She gives into her. I know, Amy is her pet. But wow. It's hard to get 25 cents. Do you know how many pieces of scrap fabric you have to sell to get 25 cents? Well, or how many noses you have to wipe or et cetera. We're going to go down to visit Marmy. Marmy is exhausted in Washington.
0: And John Brooke shows up and tries to help her keep
1: healthy
0: oh my goodness poor marmy i used to fall asleep on the stairs in the theater building (laughs) at ku but that's because i was burning the candle at both ends and it was joyful you know but Mm -hmm. um her state is not joyful at all she looks so bad and mr Brooke asked their boarding house to make up a basket there's beef tea which i'm guessing is just broth No, I would think that that's exactly what it was. Okay. And fruit and toast. And she's like, he's in no fit state to eat or drink anything. And he gently says, for you, Mrs. March. Isn't it good that he's there? Otherwise, what would happen to Marmee? I mean, she'd probably get very sick herself. Oh, definitely.
1: Uh, Yeah, I don't know. She looks exhausted. And it's nice to have a hero by her side that's looking out for her. You know, she's the caretaker of father. So she has no caretaker. (laughs) Yeah, it's very sweet. I did want to know what happens to toast. Like, I eat it instantly. How do you transport toast?
0: Well, it could be two things. One of which is it could be a Britishism that made its way in. Because remember, there was an episode of Downton Abbey where the old-timey folks of Britain were making a big deal about hot toast and uh, how weird it was. And you see upstairs, everyone's eating their toast in toast racks. So, you know, vintage Britons, anyway ate their toast stone cold on their table. That might be the case here, that it's a oopsie, or it might just be toast was actually probably easier to transport than bread, and maybe Americans ate their toast that way too before a certain point. Uh, It would be good to dip in the soup anyway, so I don't know. Maybe it doesn't have butter on it. Or welcome to the overthinking department. (laughs) It could be that they did not give it one simple thought at all and we are just being crazy. And I was wondering why I was so curiously attracted to Mr. Brooke until (laughs) it suddenly hit me. I don't know if any of you watch New Girl. He is Ryan you from New Girl, the British <laughs> teacher that the main character, Jess, falls in love with inappropriately at work. Oh, my. I know. that's. I'm laughing in the background because I wrote
1: almost verbatim in the same thing. The actor's name is Julian Morris. He's 35 and he's British. So he's faking an American accent.
0: He's doing he's, a, he's doing okay.
1: Yeah, he is. I was very surprised that he was British. Actually, I usually am. I usually can't tell. But yeah, he was Ryan. Woohoo. He's hot. <laughs> Sorry. Is that bad? He's very handsome. He's a handsome man, even with his facial hair, which I don't approve of. But
0: well, good for Meg. Woo, fan. Um, yeah. Okay.
1: Amy has, of course, procured her limes. She's walking to school with her moist round paper parcel of pickled limes. And we get to school and realize that Amy isn't the mean girl.
0: <laughs> OK, so she's eating one on the way, which is a nod to the book mm-hmm. because it says Amy came to school with 24 pickled limes because she ate one on the way. So they are really curiously sticklers for certain kinds of detail. <laughs> Yeah, the timeline is gone to hell. That's all I'm going to say as far as the book goes.
1: But um, yeah, I love it when they put these little details in like that. And I love that they made her eat the pickled lime. (laughs) I don't know. Was it really just a lime that they made brown? I don't know.
0: Maybe it's super good. Have you made any yet? No, but aren't they sour sour? Because there's no sugar
1: involved. I don't know. I have not made any.
0: We'll never know until we make them. Okay.
1: How long do they take to set? Do you remember? I will make them and I will report back regardless of when it was. Okay. If they're
0: like refrigerator pickles will be okay. Like Kool-Aid pickles will be ready in like you can eat them in four hours.
1: So by the time we talk about our next episode, I will have had and made pickled limes. I will get the stuff today. Today.
0: <laughs> All right. So as our heroine Amy enters the playground area her friend Mary warns about the teacher Mr. Davies woo he is in a mood today fair warning don't (laughs) even taunt him and then we encounter Jenny Snow who is in fact sort of Super hateful. Um, she sees that Amy has pickled limes and says, well, you could always smell mine flat nose or no flat nose. Can I please tell you that book Amy blames Joe for her flat nose? <laughs> 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 Evidently, Joe dropped her in the coal bucket when she was a baby. And um broke or flattened her nose. Well, but evidently this Miss Snow, Jenny, had mocked Amy for not being able to afford any limes and had eaten them right in front of her. So blurg to her. Total blurg. (laughs) I agree.
1: They did throw in a line in here that was actually right from the book. Uh, Mary says, when she's describing Mr. Davis, she says he's nervous as a witch and as cross as a bear, which is a direct quote from the book. So... Again, there's a little detail that was actually, you know, just a little one. Yay. <laughs> Meanwhile, Meg is off with her friends at the Moffat's. There is pre-ball primping, some mild class shaming, and promises made by Meg and her friends at the Moffat's mansion.
0: No, I seriously do not think that these young ladies are being mean to her. Do you? Um,
1: I think that they are being unintentionally mean. I think they are being mean in the way that they're just not aware of it, which is... <laughs>
0: Well, so thoughtless. They're just thoughtless from their position on high. They don't understand about not affording things.
1: Mm -hmm. Exactly. And they didn't think it. They can't possibly think it through.
0: In their world, that's what they talk about. Being a debutante and corsets Mm -hmm. and flowers and admirers. And they do admire her flowers. They do admire her generosity. Um, They do admire her arms. (laughs) Well, there is this strong understanding that she and Laurie have a thing. Sort of unworthily, I wondered if that's why she'd been invited. Like, don't ignore the future super rich. Um, But I don't think so. Because in the book, Sally Moffat is her good friend, even later. And... There's this contrast, if you think about it, between these American girls and the English one we just saw last episode, who left when she found out Meg was a governess. Meg was invited special to this American house, and they know her position. So in that respect, they're better people than that British girl was. They don't have a whole um, a distaste for work. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, there's No. That- So I don't think they're being mean. I think they're just like, oh, uh, makeover. (laughs) Maybe. I don't know. It's just
1: maybe it's just the way that the lines were delivered. It just sounded like they were fishing to find things that they admired about Meg so that they could twist the conversation around to wanting to make her over. I I don't know. It just To me, it had a tone of class shaming is all I can say. And just the way they set it up. Meg is buffing. Belle's fingernails. So she's serving Belle right then and there. Everybody else is just sitting around.
0: Hmm. Eh. I don't know. I I wasn't reading too much into that, actually. But uh, I don't know. I wonder what was going on in my life when I watched it. (laughs) I'm like, dang.
1: Maybe it was the previous scene. Maybe I had Jenny Snow following me.
0: (laughs) And I will say I really admire how Meg said simply, you know, they said, wouldn't it be nice if you had this and that and high heels and a flower and a little vase? And she said, it would be, but I don't have any of that. And um, I have no way to obtain that. And that's just how it is. She didn't seem defensive or angry or even sad, really just laid it out. And I liked this conversation better than I liked the one in the 1994 one, which was like, Um, talking about the labor market and the silk mills and all the little children. And she gave a reformer type of transcendentalist speech, which could be more true to the book. But I liked this one better. It made me not dislike these ladies as much. Okay, I see that. Yeah. So that's it for that scene for me.
1: Joe and Lori are driving back from dropping off Meg in a carriage and they get into a little spat. (laughs)
0: Did you see Meg's face, Joe said. And Joe is worried about Moffat snobbery in a way that Meg wasn't. She had no thought of it, in fact. Lori's position is she may still marry a rich man, uh, her friend's brother, for one. And Joe is all rumply in her mind about Mr. Brooke already. And now the thought of pool playing, whiskey drinking, rich boys thinking Meg is hot also is just too much for her. You got trouble with a capital T, and that rhymes with P, and that stands for pool. <laughs> ten points, the under nerds. What is that musical?
1: <laughs> uh, that's funny. Oh, Music Man. Sorry, isn't it? Hey,
0: you just you just deprived everyone of their ten <gasps> points. Oh, oh,
1: well, if they had, if it hadn't come to. Album, maybe we should put a break in there. I'll. T- I'll never mind. I'll take it. <laughs>
0: Moving on, though, Joe <laughs> tells Lori that if he keeps up with his nefarious activities, Marmy is going to forbid her daughter seeing him, so he better cool it. Now, the bar for nefariousness is extraordinarily low here.
1: I <laughs> know, really. It's um, going to town, playing billiards, and drinking whiskey. That's it. I bet you when he was away in Europe, they did
0: stuff like that every day. Well, and even Lori... Objects, So I have to be a double distilled saint now. And in the book, Joe says, I can't bear saints. Just be a simple, honest, respectable boy and we will never desert you, which is sort of preachy. Mm-hmm. But movie Joe says that he is really not understanding how good he has it. He has a chance to study. He has a chance to go to college. Where she's not going to get to go to college, no matter how smart she is or how well read she is. It's just not possible for her to further her education, at least not formally. And he loses his temper. And I just don't understand why. Are you going to deliver lectures to me all the way home? Because if so, I'm walking. And then they have the, I'll take the bus. No, I'll take the bus. And then no one takes the bus. <laughs> Back at the Moffat's Mansion, Meg is getting Cinderella, Eliza Doolittle, pretty womaned up for the ball. She likes it. She likes it. There is no reluctance at all. She loves it. And I like the little smile that Sally gives Meg as Meg is looking at her beautiful self in the mirror. It's fond. It's not smug. It's not like, see, I told you you'd be hotter with all this crap on your face. No, she's genuinely happy for her friend who looks spectacular.
1: Oh, she does. I like the girls in this particular scene more than when they were talking.
0: <laughs> but uh, yeah, it,
1: it. she does look so happy and she gets a little bit of rouge on her cheeks. And wow, makeup. You'd never get that over at the March's house. That's for sure. <laughs> Amy, back at school, gets busted for her limes, and she's painfully punished, both physically and emotionally.
0: So, Miss Snow just tells on her. Now, I will tell you, it's kind of Mary's fault for messing with Amy's (laughs) desk in the first place. But Miss Snow has to stand up and tattle. And so, the first punishment... Throw them out the window, those forbidden limes. That to me sounds like fair enough punishment. You weren't supposed to have these. So how about you waste your money by ruining them? That seems fair, though I could do without dragging her by her ear to the front of the room. Mm -hmm. But then he smacks her hand with a ruler. And the book says for the first time in her life, she had been struck. And the disgrace was as deep as if he had knocked her down. And I'm wondering if he went to stage two because she just flung the whole package out the window instead of doing what he said. So then you go to the third punishment. You are going to stand here in front of the class until recess, which, of course, if you've read the book, is only 15 minutes. But I will tell you, based on this scene in the book, and in fact, in the 1994 movie, where Amy is made to stand in front of the class as humiliation as punishment when a substitute teacher made my child stand in front of the class holding a clipboard of unfinished work. I'm here to tell you that sub no longer gets called to that school because I do not approve of humiliation as a way to correct children's behavior. And I use this literary reference and that of Jane Eyre, and my most stringent tone and extensive vocabulary, to get my point across. (laughs) And so that substitute teacher can no longer work at that school, even now, now that my child doesn't go there, she's still not called. The end. Every
1: time I see one of those videos of, you know, parents shaming their kids as punishment, I just cringe and think, wow. And they sound so proud of themselves on the, you know, on the video. you know what I'm talking? You know, those YouTube videos, they they get shared a lot. Kids walking around with clappers on, you know, in a public place saying whatever they did that was wrong. And the parent is videotaping it. So not only is this kid standing in a public place with a sign on him that says he broke curfew too many times or he lied to his parents or whatever he did, but the parent is filming it and he's going to put it online to show the world.
0: I think dog shaming is Okay.
1: Yes, I agree with you. Those are adorable.
0: (laughs) But yes, kid shaming is not okay to me. Do you remember this from the 1994 version? Marmy actually is the one that writes if you hit and humiliate a child, she will learn to hit and humiliate. And in that instance, I loved how enraged the Winona writer Joe got. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> just like you know, staggering back and forth, roar, 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 like almost wanting to punch him in the face. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, that I, you just brought up a big difference between this version and that version and the book, because in all those other ones, Marmee was there during this period of time. Mm-hmm. Now the girls are all on their own. Uh, that's a huge difference that struck me. I was like, oh, dang, they played with the damn timeline again. But I have to say, in the book, this is one of my favorite chapter headings. It's ti- "It's chapter seven, and it's titled Amy's Valley of Humiliation, huh. which sounds like so overdramatic, you know, Amy, Amy's Valley of Humiliation. <laughs> We're back at Orchard House and the girls take care of Amy and her injuries and they discuss why and how this was horrible punishment and they kind of
0: bicker about it. I'm not going back, says Amy. And Joe's like, I'm not making you. So they're They're in agreement with that part. As usual, though, Amy immediately focuses on the wrong thing. All those limes are wasted. And then she surprises me, actually, and says, all I could think about was Marmee's face, how disappointed she would be in me. So there's some growth. Mm -hmm. And she cried. Yeah. She started, I mean, real tears, not crocodile ones. She was really
1: imagining how Marmee would look being disappointed in her.
0: And I really think Marmy wouldn't care about the messy kitchen or the teacups necessarily because that could be fixed. But yes, I think she would be disappointed in Amy. I really Mm, do. Yeah. And then Joe, as many of us do when we are tired or hungry or hangry or just plain got out of the wrong side of the bed, yells at Beth, who's just sitting there for playing a song, a certain song. And how can you yell at Beth? Joe March. Like... (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
1: and she's the one that sent her over there to play the piano because things were getting a little heated so joe was like why don't you go play something on the piano and calm us all down
0: and beth not having esp chose the wrong selection (laughs) But it was the right selection because
1: it was her parents' favorite song, right? Yeah. I think that's a great selection. They were just bickering. I think this is a good way to show that, you know, the idealized setting, you know, of the girls taking care of themselves is collapsing. (laughs) And it's not only that, it's collapsing into reality. (laughs)
0: Yes, yes. We don't get any of the financial difficulties that we got in the 1994 version where the grocer had cut off credit and everything. Mm-hmm. I just thought that was an interesting omission. Yeah,
1: that's a good point. Meg is at the ball. There's dancing and some very heavy flirting. But when Lori shows up, it reveals some neighborhood gossip.
0: It's the waltz, y'all. That is shocking. The waltz. Well, now she flirts and gets back for her pains. The shocking language. I'm not so easily rebuffed, you bewitching little minx, which I still find gross in the modern day. Like you're going to get a punch in the ding ding. <laughs> and I guess what is the point? It, what is the point here? If she'd been dressed as Marmee's carefully brought up daughter, no way would he have said that? Is that what we're implying? That she has uh, opened the door for this behavior? Well, I don't know. I don't necessarily prove that message, but Meg uses Lori's appearance to try to get rid of this guy. And when the guy looks back to see what the excuse was an old family friend, he says meanly, in my opinion. So it's true what everyone says. Mrs. March has made her plans. And I'm sure this man would call himself a nice guy. So nice guys, man. Nice guys.
1: (laughs) Lori and Meg refresh themselves with some champagne and ice cream while Meg rants on about the gossip
0: and the unexpected downside of her ball experience. One of my favorite things in OK, this actually has two of my favorite things in this whole entire episode. OK, so Laurie comes in and, you know, you think he's going to be like, oh, what happened or whatever. And he goes, stop fanning yourself. <laughs> it isn't even hot. <laughs> like, I love him. He's such a little brother. And then she is just head up. How dare people even think Marmy has plans for us? And Laurie's all I'll make my own match. Thank you very much. And she said, me too. One day. And they're they're of a mind and Mm -hmm. Meg is is so upset that here she has been swimming innocently in these waters and evidently all the time, people have been smiling at her behind her back and she hates this. Do you remember what we said in the first episode about ankles and feet and their sensual nature during this time period? This is my second favorite thing. I love this so much. How when Meg is freaking out about her uncomfortable shoes, she yanks her skirt up to the knees to show him. And he looks directly at camera. And oh, I have a screenshot to show you. He looks like PETA in the elevator during Catching Fire. When that Joanna Mason from District 7 takes off all of her clothes, Lori... Looks at us like, ha ha ha! ha okay, whoa! <laughs> it is uh, evidently I'm a member of this family. Cause dang, what just happened? <laughs> <laughs> it backs
1: up the idea that he considers himself a member of the family, and he plays the role of a little brother because anybody in proper society wouldn't be talking to her like that. I mean, she was doing the same thing with the fan inside. And her dance partner wasn't saying anything, but outside he's like, yeah, stop with the fan. Too much. Too much.
0: Oh, just (laughs) wait until you see the face. I I laugh every time I look at the screenshot I took.
1: (laughs) You'll have to send me that one.
0: He is looking straight at you and me. Awesome. People. Oh, my God, people. (laughs) (laughs) Ankles, ankles, there's ankles. (laughs) But he's like kind of not looking, not looking. You know, it's really cute. Well, Meg says, don't tell Joe that they dressed me up and I was flirting. She doesn't like anything to do with romance or flirting. And then he he says, I know, in the tone that means, don't I know it. (laughs) Do you think Meg understands that Lori likes Joe? I don't. But yeah,
1: I don't either. Even when he says... One day she'll change her mind, meaning one day Joe will fall in love with me. <laughs> it's while I read it, yeah, but I don't, I don't think she even picked up on it there. But it could have been because she had been drinking so much champagne that she was already starting to get hungover, <laughs> which is what she said basically. I drink so much champagne that I already have a headache, so she wasn't paying attention. I don't think, <laughs> <laughs> and she wanted to put her feet in the ice cream. Yeah. <laughs> And I did love the very unladylike way she dug into that ice cream.
0: And the cheerful face he gives her about that, too. Like, well, all right, I guess there's no pretension left. You just shoved in your head a whole tablespoonful of ice cream <laughs> and went right back for another. <laughs> I don't care about your brain freeze. <laughs> it was really cute. Like the ladylike behavior is just off the table. You know? Uh-huh. And, you know, I actually think that's probably a nice feeling for him. I mean, that's like he's a member of the family, the fifth kid. So I uh-huh. think that's good.
1: Yeah. Well, in the environment where he lives, it's very formal and, you know, not very... Not very loving at all. I mean, he just lives with his grandfather and the servants. Mm. So being with this very real family anytime must be such a delight for him. I th- I think I just love watching him. I-, I love this character. I love the way the actor played him. I thought it was great. The end. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> That's how I think about Laurie. Joe and Beth march to the Davis Academy to withdraw Amy. And Joe gives Mr. Davis a good verbal slap.
0: I will say that Joe got Beth out of the house, so that's good, although she doesn't want to go in. Also, Joe looks exhausted, exhausted, and I don't think it's just her unfortunate hair. I, she looks thinner. She looks careworn and angry. Well, she goes in, and then there's, you know, lots of stuff falling down in a big crash. Want womp. Joe fell <laughs> over. She's super clumsy. Um, okay, whatever. We know. Um... She formally withdraws her sister from Mr. Davis's school. Fees until the end of the week are included. So it's legitimately, you know, not in the heat of the moment. Here you go. We are really out. And then Mr. Davis tries to justify. I'm not 100% sure his motivation here. Like, why is he even talking to her? I don't know. Uh, He says, Ms. March was a favorite of mine. Had she apologized or begged or beseeched me, I would have desisted. And Joe agrees she should have apologized. That's pretty much Amy's ground state. She should have apologized to whatever (laughs) she's doing. But Joe goes on as her defender, which doesn't happen a lot. If she was too proud to beseech or beg, I commend her. Take that.
1: (laughs) And she's holding this big stack of things. Okay, that racket. Was that a badminton racket? A lawn tennis racket? I couldn't decide and then I went back and looked at the history of both the sports and I still can't decide.
0: <laughs>
1: Did you know what it was or do you not care?
0: It was a prop that kept falling. I think that was <laughs> It was just an awkward thing to make her dignified. It's it reminded me of that old trope where a woman in a show says something blistering to the person and leaves the room and then she comes in and says, "I forgot my purse." It happens a lot. So I think that the tennis racket was like, and you, sir, are blah, blah, blah. Oh, crap. Stuff's falling. You know, (laughs) like it was a little bit of a, I don't know, dignity reducer. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Okay. I'll accept
1: that. (laughs) I like the way that she delivered every line, though. It's like she practiced in her head.
0: I guarantee you she practiced at least in front of the mirror, if not in front of Beth. Mm -hmm. She probably was walking back and forth, declaiming with her fist in the air. (laughs) (laughs)
1: this is how I'm going to play it because Mm -hmm. we know that they do a lot of theatricals up in that garret. Although this is the only version that you've ever seen. You would not know that
0: (laughs) we, we get one more later in this episode.
1: Yeah. It's
0: pretty delightful and cute
1: with her task done. Joe and Beth victoriously head home. I got nothing.
0: (laughs) Nope. No, Mm -mm, nothing.
1: Oh, okay. (laughs) Back home, Meg and Amy discuss father from two very different perspectives.
0: Well, Meg is reading the newspaper and there is horrible news of the war, including people drowning in a river. And we can see Meg's concerned, but she's also concerned that there might be conscription, a draft. And who is she thinking of? Maybe Lori. Maybe Mr. Brooke, we don't know, or maybe just young men of her acquaintance in general. Meanwhile, Amy has got herself into a situation with a bucket of plaster of Paris. She even tells us she's so glad she used less water than the instructions because it is totally setting. And her view of the war is, I know what I'll do. I will use this plaster casting to make a model of my foot. And then I'll send it to father and they can put it by his bed to make him feel happy. (laughs) Like she, her face says, this is the perfect thing for
1: him. He will love this because I am me. You know, she's so self-centered. It's hysterical. That battle that they were talking about, we actually got a way to date this. It was the Battle of Balls Bluff, and it was held on October 21st, 1861. So we have a date, and it was a Confederate victory.
0: We really are at the beginning of the war, aren't we? Mm. When people still thought it was going to be relatively quick.
1: Mhm yep 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 And only a year before Lincoln had had his own plaster cast made of his hands
0: <laughs> I think it was just a thing but you know he probably took some precautions unlike Miss Amy more on that in a moment <laughs> Well it was done by a professional so <laughs>
1: Correct big
0: difference Also
1: he's the president so
0: Also they might have read the instructions and obeyed them <laughs> Beth has taken up care of the Hummels, but no one in the house
1: can avail themselves to go with her when she wants to go visit.
0: So Beth asks Hannah if she could take this loaf of bread to the Hummels. And Hannah even is beside herself and goes on a giant rant. Now, she does not have another glorious phrase like she was out to acquire an additional onions or whatever she said last time. But she (laughs) does express her irritation. It's a wash day. And so unless someone in this house sets to baking, there will not be any more bread. And Meg was supposed to help with the laundry and she's been off drinking champagne and being a fine lady. And it looks like even no school Amy's not about to roll up her sleeves to help. And Joe, uh, the fourth sister in the party, may well have been at Aunt March's all week, though she's not today. So I'm saying... Amy should have stepped up. Now, does she know how to make bread? Maybe it won't be that delicious, but someone could teach her how to make bread. So no one is rolling up their sleeves and things are getting worse domestically around the house. So that's what we're supposed to take from that is that Hannah is like not exactly at the end of her rope, but she's fixing to reach it
1: (laughs) (laughs) even in the very first scene when it was again laundry day it was so beautiful and so serene and now it's raining out she's having to do the laundry in the kitchen she's not happy everybody's starting to lose it i think that's the progression of this episode you know how the family is working i thought that was great
0: Upstairs, Beth is trying to solicit additional accompaniments for her trip to the Hummels. And ha, Amy's stuck in the bucket. (laughs) Meg is trying to get her out with a shoe heel. I have used a shoe heel for a hammer before, but not, you know, a concrete excavation tool. (laughs) Amy says, we need a mallet. And so she picks up this lightweight pump i'm
1: like oh okay (laughs) like is there a book around maybe that would be heavier
0: something a fireplace tool i don't know amy does have a legitimate excuse why she's not going to go she says can't you see i'm being incommoded by my art (laughs) (laughs) i don't know how she'd get there with a bucket on her foot so yes you're right what about meg Mm, I have letters to write. So she's not going to go either. Nobody's going. And Beth is
1: all dressed. She's got her basket with the last bread this family has for days until they make some more. And she's all dressed. She's ready to go. And nobody is going with her. So she goes
0: upstairs to Joe, who objects. You have been over there every day this week, Beth. And Beth tries to explain that Mrs. Hummel has found some work. And so the children are alone. And the seven-year-old is in charge over there. Lotchen is her name. Almost, um, It's Charlotte... They call her Lottchen, like Margaret is Gretchen. Anyway, it means little Lottie. It's sort of dire, the situation at the Hummel's house, but Joe's not hearing what she's saying. No, I have a cold, and Aunt sent me home because she can't stand the sound of my voice. And she's not going to go. She has a cold, it's raining, and I'm not feel like it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and she doesn't even think Beth should go. Mm -mm. No, no, you're right. When you said she's not listening... That is exactly what was going on. And Beth is really, if I do say so, the only one living up to her promise to her parents, by the way. She's maintaining the house more than anyone else. And she's conquering her fears, especially now with this situation. She, the desire to help the Hummels overcame her shyness and she set off through town by herself. So Beth
1: does set out and she arrives at the Hummels. It's as awful as it was the last time we were there. But this time all the kids are in bed very sick and the baby is the worst. And when she finds him, she has to rush out to get him saved.
0: So she's asking Lachin over and over, where's the baby? Where's the baby? And everyone is just glazed. I mean, they're crying. One of the little boys is calling for his mother. Everybody's coughing. It is not good. And there are no grownups there. And there's no child over 10 there. So she picks up the baby and all Beth keeps saying is, oh, please wake up, baby. Please wake up. Wake up. And Beth grabs a hold of this baby and goes running through the muddy streets with the most horrible tormented expression on her face don't freeze frame it will not be delicious for you Mm -mm. she she goes to dr bangs and his mother's gone out scrubbing she says so she can pay you and he just stands up he covers the baby's face and says calmly there will be no bill and then he tells beth he has to examine her too she's been exposed to whatever Mm -hmm. these kids have
1: Yeah. Well, and they said that, I think they set it up in the last scene when Joe said, you've gone every day this week. Mm -hmm. So she's been, it wasn't that she was just exposed right then and there. She's been exposed the whole time. She's the one that, you know, they just had a fever and that the rash had just shown up. So she's been monitoring them. So yeah, her health is definitely in peril here. Now I do have a question. Did the baby die from scarlet fever or did the baby die from suffocation?
0: Well, I don't know, except for the fact that it seems to be that the doctor was talking about Scarlet Fever to Beth. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure if it was suffocation, if that would even... When Beth found the baby, he was underneath all those blankets. Well, I don't know the book... The baby died in Beth's arms. So I'm guessing the implication we're supposed to take is that it died from scarlet fever. That's a good point, because mm-hmm. in in this depiction, it does look like Latchin kind of had to dig it out from under the covers. But mm-hmm. in the book, it was very, very clear that the baby took its last breath while Beth was holding it.
1: Yes. Yeah, I know. And just this th- this scene, maybe that's my uh, parental thing. It's like every time I see a little toddler even near a pool, I kind of freak out inside. So if I see a baby underneath the blankets, I'm like, oh, that's not good. Dr. Bangs brings home a suddenly very weak bath, and the girls have to decide if this is something that they can handle on their own.
0: So Dr. Bangs, says Meg, is sure that it's scarlet fever. He has seen a dozen children die of scarlet fever in the past two weeks. And I was thinking about this. You know, we always joke grimly about 19th century medicine but I was just thinking of the... I don't know what to call it, grim helplessness that any compassionate man, doctor, might feel knowing that there's nothing he can do to save them and they're going to die over and over. The bearer of bad tidings, the recipient of grief, and it would take such a stoic character. So I'm sorry, Dr. Banks and all your compatriots for... It's not your fault that you don't have antibiotics. It's not your fault. And you have to deal with the aftermath of... That lack. So um, good for him, though, for persisting. It's got to be a hard, hard thing. So that's Mm -hmm. all I need to say about Dr. Banks. He he, he's (laughs) the man. Well, I the scarlet fever epidemics have been going
1: on since the 1820s, you know, in America. So actually worldwide. So he's been dealing with this probably his entire professional career. I don't know if that makes it any easier, but probably not.
0: (laughs) No, I would say like an ER doctor or, in fact, any doctor, maybe you have to develop some kind of shell to just protect yourself. Because if you let yourself grieve properly and humanly for every single thing, you'd probably never be able to make it through the next day. I think the same thing about social workers. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know how?
1: how they handle that, you know, are they just able to compartmentalize that well? Or even police officers. I mean, anything that deals with public tragedy and you know, the horrors of the world.
0: Joe and Meg are both blaming themselves. Meg knew there was scarlet fever in town because that's the reason she could go to the Moffats. Her pupils were spirited out of town to the ocean with their parents to avoid the scarlet fever. So she knew there was danger. And then, of course, Joe says that she should have gone with Beth instead of, and I quote, just writing that rubbish. So they're both taking upon the guilt that Beth went by herself. Now, Meg's is more legitimate, but if Beth's been going all week, I don't know that Joe going with her would have helped her not get exposed to scarlet fever. So maybe I'll blame Meg.
1: (laughs) Okay, let's do that. I don't know. So I mean, all she was thinking about was dancing and champagne. Maybe. <laughs> well, of course, the fifth child is there, Lori. And he thinks that the girls really need to tell their mother that this is an important thing. You know, she needs to know, he's saying. And they're like, no, we don't want to add to her anxiety. Again, you know, like we, saw, we talked about this just a little bit ago. They don't want to make her upset for things she can't control. She has to focus on father. Joe is inventorying, you know, their medicine
0: supply like crazy. And in my head, I'm going, where's the belladonna? Where's the belladonna? They use it for everything in this family. I think it is a multipurpose poison slash (laughs) medicine. They are admittedly in a very hard place because father or Beth is basically their choice. And maybe they're deciding it won't come to that. It hasn't reached that pivotal decision, at least not yet. Beth could still just turn the corner. Perfectly plausible. So I agree. And
1: the amount of time it would take mother to get home she Mother. could be all
0: better. And then it would have been a wasted journey. So
1: I hate Marmy's I the name, the word Marmy. It just it grates on my ears. So I'm, I'm like not even calling her that right now. Mother. I, I never liked it in the book. And then all those Amy, Marmy, Marmy. It's just ooh, ooh.
0: <laughs> my, um, my voice to text uh, always corrects to mommy. M-O-M-M-Y.
1: Oh, interesting. Lori, who apparently is the man of the house, is arguing with Amy about her going to stay at Aunt March's house and they make some deals.
0: This scene would read so much better if Amy were 12. Seriously, she is too old for this tantrum. I don't buy it. I don't like it. No, I don't like it at all. It's really crazy and mm, whatever. But Lori offers to come visit and take her out in his carriage every day. And all he's trying to do is help Meg and Joe, who are worried sick and have enough to think about, frankly. He's just trying to remove one of their worries, the worry that Amy is going to contract scarlet fever. Joe and Meg have already had it. Just wasn't aware that you couldn't get it again. But I guess evidently they are relatively immune. Ah, I, I hate how she bargains with him. This carriage or that? Hmm. And he's like, whatever, both of them, in turn, I don't care. And when she says, just as long as everyone remembers, I'm making a great sacrifice. I am so proud of Lori that he kept his calm face on at all. <laughs> and even in this scene, because she looks so old, she looks the
1: same age as Lori almost. It just seems like they're laying the groundwork for a future relationship. You know, I just there's t- there's a tone there that wouldn't be there if she was looked 12.
0: I sort of found
1: it quite disturbing, actually.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep.
1: Joe and Hannah take care of a very feverish bath. She's so sick.
0: Scarlet fever used to be up to 30 percent fatal. And nowadays, of course, you can just boop, take an antibiotic series and mostly most of us would be done with it. But in the Belladonna age, it could lead to arthritis, pneumonia, systemic infection, kidney disease, and rheumatic fever, which itself, among other things, causes so many serious complications. More on that later, but let's just say in 1861, Beth is dangerously, dangerously ill. To us
1: watching this, it seems like she became ill very quickly. But again, she had been exposed a long time ago. um, And the incubation period for scarlet fever is only one to two days. So even if she visited the Hummels just two days ago, she could have come down with it. So she was probably doing all of that and felt miserable. You know, Mm -hmm. like she was sick. She knew she was sick. And she still went to the Hummels.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I really liked the water bottle. It struck me because in our heads, a wa- hot water bottle is a rubber, soft, bo- you know, container filled with hot water. This was an actual earthenware bottle. Ooh. Yes. And yes, it probably was hard, but it was probably better than the version that came before because that one was made out of metal.
0: <laughs> Can you imagine how hot that would be? Oh, yeah, I have a big, big, I say I, I mean, Chris Graham has a big, giant flask. And I can see in a pinch that being a good hot water bottle.
1: Oh, yeah. But it, metal conducts the heat so much. Couldn't you get burned on it?
0: Oh, you'd probably have to wrap it in a towel.
1: Yeah, yeah. It just was really neat. And apparently this earthenware bottles have been around for a long time. They're flat on one
0: side. I don't know. I thought it was cool. It's just that is a, cool. It's just yeah. a, it's an article that you don't think about in the days before plastics mm-hmm. and before rubber was really widely available. You just don't think about that.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. At Aunt March's, it seems that she and Polly have a new companion to receive Aunt March's cantankerous wisdom.
0: <laughs> Scarlet fever. Hmm. It's inevitable if you're encouraged to go poking about among poor folks. <laughs> oh, Ann March. She asks Amy if at home, and she's trying to make conversation. I'm kind of intrigued by her clumsiness in this, but at home, are you petted and indulged? The whole time, Polly, this giant bird, is sitting on Amy's shoulder, pecking at the bow in her hair. So it's super undignified, which Amy... Hates to be undignified, and this is just like the worst. (laughs) What if it poops on her shoulder? It's just she's uh, sitting bolt upright, trying to maintain. Amy says, yes, at home, I I am petted and indulged. And Aunt March disapproves of that and says, the female animal should not be indulged. Her path is a thorny one. She must learn to tread it in a spirit of self-governance. Now she, Aunt March, using the timeline from the book, came of age right at a time called the Second Great Awakening, the time that produced the likes of Mary Wollstonecraft and Abigail Adams, tough ladies who took names and called it like it was. Now, Aunt March certainly seems like a lady that calls it like it is. We have moved into an era where there was a cult of domesticity, similar to the 1950s, where womanly attributes and... Quietness and politeness and submissiveness were very valued among the young ladies. So here she is from the generation of the tell men what's going (laughs) to (laughs) happen. So anyway, I can totally see why there was a generational clash right there.
1: Yeah, that was a great way to put it.
0: Good. Oh, well, okay. Philosophy aside, it seems like that Aunt March likes the look of this niece that she's hardly ever seen. I think the head of her cane is a frog, too. There's a close-up of it. But I so wanted it to be a turtle that I, like, tried with my eyes. I squinted. I was like, can it please be a turtle? It's a a frog. I'm sorry. I'm sorry for myself.
1: There was this birdcage that was behind Aunt March. If you photograph somebody, you need to look at what's in the background or else it's going to be on their head. A lot of oh. times, you know, like if there's antlers on the mantle, you have to per- put the person in a different way or else they're wearing mantle antlers.
0: <laughs> Man, say it again. Mantle antlers. It's funny. I dare you to say it three times. Okay. No, say mantle antlers, mantle antlers, mantle antlers.
1: Mantle antlers, mantle antlers, and <laughs> mantle antlers.
0: Okay. You win. Yay. Yay. Yay.
1: Okay. <laughs> Along those lines. Um she tells amy that she has a much better countenance <laughs> not con- okay
0: <laughs> you know i'm going to have to explain
1: that Jack. i know you are but i thought i i put that in there just for you but yes
0: please explain it <laughs> In the Dark Ages of the History Chicks podcast, our other show, during the recording of Jane Austen, Susan asserted that Jane Austen had suffered a loss of continence. <laughs> <laughs> I have oh never stopped laughing about that. and <laughs> she's, She said it over and over. Continence. No. <laughs> continence. I'm like, no. Countenance. And then we both fell out of our chairs. Oh, die. Okay. Uh, last episode of this thing when I
1: took the Which March Girl Are You test and I came up with Amy. Oh my god. <laughs> I'm an Amy? That's just, I mean, she uses the wrong word all the time. That's true. Yeah. That's very true. Anyway. I'm getting myself back together because I laugh every time I think of that too. <laughs> Mr. Lawrence the Old visits Orchard House and he and Hannah catch each other up on the health of both Beth. And Mr. March.
0: Mr. Lawrence is asking to see Beth, and Hannah explains that Beth is too sick for visitors. She would not even know you, sir. And like in the Little House books, Hannah says that the doctor's fearing that scarlet fever will make Beth go blind. But modern day digging into the facts of that case reveal... That Mary Ingalls had probably gone blind with encephalitis, or as they would say at the time, brain fever, which coincidentally enough is the very disease that Mr. Lawrence says that father is suffering in his own sickbed up in Washington, D.C. Um, I thought that was a curious circle. I didn't know if that was on purpose. Well, basically, Hannah and Mr. Lawrence sort of agree wordlessly that they're going to keep this Worldwide bad news, really, from their respective contacts. Right.
1: My question is, how do you confuse encephalitis with pneumonia? Because everyone assumed that Mr. March had pneumonia, but Mr. Lawrence is saying, no, it was encephalitis all along, which is, like you said, a brain swelling of the brain. How do you confuse those two? They're totally different body parts.
0: I do not. Okay, I have an answer for that. I do not think it was ever pneumonia. I think it was a kindness mm. on the behalf of Mr. Brooke and Mrs. March to lessen the worry at home. Oh, that's perfect because that's exactly
1: what the girls are doing. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love that. I love that. <laughs> okay. I mean, I don't love that they're hiding the facts from each other, but I love that they're really concerned about each other in the same manner.
0: Because Mr. Lawrence said it never was. It never was pneumonia. Like he was releasing a secret. Mm hmm. Yeah. Upstairs, Beth is so
1: sick that she's hallucinating and Joe is with her and she's trying to comfort her.
0: Green birds, says Beth over and over. Green birds. No, no, honey. It's the wallpaper. It's Ivy on the wallpaper. And Beth is just gone. I mean, she's gone to a place that Joe was begging her to come back from. Uh, It's bewildering and it's got to be quite scary that Beth doesn't know where she is or who she's with she is failing
1: yeah this scene is just so so sad as joe has beth's head on her lap and you know she's just trying to comfort her and she's being fairly calm you know because i can imagine in her head she's going oh my gosh my sister is so bad that she thinks the wallpaper is alive Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and and yet she has to be calm about it oh heartbreaking Again, and I don't even have a sister, but I imagine (laughs) that that would add another element of um, heart pain on that. At Aunt March's, Amy is having a much better time than she had expected, and Lori does keep
0: his promise, and here's Amy's very cold family show-and-tell history. Well, she's playing dress-up in Aunt March's old finery. She's got a big wig. She has got a cloak. She is parading up and down, and in the book... The parrot is also parading up and down. I guess they did not find the appropriate parrot trainer to make that happen. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually quite a cute scene in the book because the little parrot says all these things like, bless my buttons, aren't we fine? And all that kind of stuff is pretty cute. <laughs> well, I like how Lori surprises her coming in and seeing her doing that. She doesn't care. She's not embarrassed. Whatever. Amy knows more about Aunt March's private life than Joe ever did. If we're being book accurate, it is actually the maid that told her all these things. It looks like Amy has heard about Aunt March's only child who died. This is its bracelet that it wore about Aunt March's father giving her a pearl necklace for her 18th birthday, which was actually her wedding day in the book. Um, and that she intends to give this pearl necklace to the first one of her great nieces that get engaged. Woohoo! All right. And then she pulls out the wedding ring, and this is gross, gross. I mean, next time I watch this, I'm skipping. I'm gonna push the fifteen second button. I'm not gonna watch this. When she drops the ring and then says, "Oh my, I'm such a butterfingers." What is? What is that? What <laughs> is that? I can't take this crazy Amy. I'm all scared. Where is Kristen Dunst? I hate this. Oh, this whole scene
1: is she's like that. She's just so cavalier. She goes to the jewelry cabinet to show Lori all the jewels and tell the story. But she has like no compassion in her voice at all. She pulls out the silver bracelet and she's like, this, this is the silver bracelet that the only baby she ever had wore. Pause, pause, pause until it died. Not even like until it died. This is psycho, Amy.
0: <laughs> well, she insults her aunt by saying that she's too fat to wear her wedding ring now. And then I do have to say that the narrator in the book did say the words, Aunt March's wedding ring too small now for her fat finger. Okay, okay fair enough. That was the narrator. And it sounds pretty heartless out of Amy's mouth. She can't wear it now. She's too fat. Mm. And of course, in the book, she became a model child for her aunt in the first place because the maid let it slip that Aunt March intended to give Amy a turquoise ring and she wanted it desperately. So sort of shallow in both stories. I will say (laughs) she she was super good, but not for the reason you think.
1: (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, which is You know, accurate with the character, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah, But the coldness of this whole scene.
0: I hated the flirting so badly that I can't even stand it. Mm -mm. And I saw flirting back in the, you know, the deal making scene. There was
1: like an overture of flirting and it just just grossed me out. At the end, she says, Lori, I want you to witness my will. So she has Lori read her will and she ponders her shortcomings for a brief moment.
0: I'm not gonna read this, says Lori, although he's just written it. Okay, it's just one apology after another. You're not sick, Amy, you're not gonna die. And then she says, everybody dies free. I've known that for a while now, to which I say, get to fixing it so we don't have to 15 second you. I don't know. <laughs> we have to 15 second you. <laughs> That's my new, I'm gonna 15 second you. Um, Lori has a similar feeling about himself, actually. Um, everyone does in the book, actually. Meg wants to be a better person. Joe wants to be a better person. So for everyone but Beth, this is actually kind of a beneficial life changing situation. Add, if you would, says Amy, that I would like all my curls cut off and given to the people who love me, to which he replies in brotherly and delightful fashion, if you want to look revolting in your coffin, that's entirely up to you. Suddenly, her face is like, no. Yeah,
1: exactly. Exactly. She's just been sitting there talking about how she wants to be a better person, and she's giving away her earthly possessions. She gives Joe her most precious plaster rabbit because she's sorry that she burned the book. Wow, that's nice to hear. She gives Lori,
0: who had been with her in her hour of darkest affection, a horse sculpture. Because he said that the horse statue had no neck. And then she looks up and goes, it didn't. You were right. <laughs> yeah. With Beth, she
1: says, if she lives after me. Again, she's done with being a better person already. <sighs>
0: Now, in the book, this is how Amy realizes Beth is gravely ill, though. She hears that Beth has written her will and it starts to change her. I'm not exactly sure what's happening with this, Amy, in so many ways. I don't understand the motivation. In this adaptation, her writing the will seems a way to make it all about her. Mm -hmm. In the book, it seems like, oh, my, okay look what Beth's doing and everybody's so sad and everybody's so sad when she goes. But when I go, I think people are not going to value me in the same way. And, and she starts to change how she thinks about herself. And in this one, it doesn't seem like there's a beneficial motivation at all. Mm -mm. It's an attention grab. Mm -hmm.
1: Oh yeah. And no change. There's Mm -hmm. a suggestion that there's going to be change, but then her actions prove otherwise.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: (laughs) speaking of saying things without saying things mr lawrence the old silently worries at his house about the girls who had played his dusty piano
0: and i have to tell you speaking of actors that act with just body language and facial expression tears spring in my eyes right here so much remembering conveyed by functionally nothing it's really good he simply closes the cover of the piano And his hand lingers a little bit too long on the cover. And that pretty much says all that you need to say. He's mourning what he's seeing as the inevitable loss of both of them.
1: Yeah, he's brilliant.
0: This is probably a good time to take a break. And when we come
1: back, we'll find out what happens with Beth's illness. And we're back. Joe is whispering encouragements to a very sick Beth, but Beth goes even sicker and becomes unconscious.
0: Joe is saying things like, if I didn't know what a tender place you had in my heart before, I know it now. I want to say thank you. Do you hear me? Do you hear me? She does not. She does not hear you. Mm -hmm. This was so sad. Mm hmm.
1: Outside, the weather changes to winter, and the doctor comes and has very grave news and instructions for the March sisters.
0: He listens to Beth's heart, and based on the results, he turns to them and says, If your mother can be sent for, you should do it now. And I think what he means by that is she should probably see her daughter before it's too late. Mm -hmm. And Meg and Joe look shocked. Of course they do. That's not at all the turn of events that they were expecting. No. Actually at the very beginning when
1: Joe was unbuttoning her nightdress for the doctor, I thought she was dead.
0: Oh no. Yeah, that uh, would be a timeline mistake, wouldn't oh, it? Oh my
1: goodness, it definitely would. If you think of something in your life that is that is extraordinarily traumatic. For instance, both of my children went to the NICU, one well, my boys. And both of them were in pretty bad shape, and we had to have this conversation about one of them. And it's just so surreal that the faces of the girls, the actresses, I can't imagine that they've lived something like that yet. Yeah, maybe they have, but they, I thought they did a really good job because it, it's like you you can't believe what you're hearing, you can't process it, and you just go blank. Mm-hmm. And I thought they did a remarkable job for that particular emotion. Next, Joe rushes out to send for Marmy, but Lori tells her he went against her wishes and already did.
0: Well, Joe is blaming herself for the current situation. I held out and I held out and now it might be too late. And so Lori reveals... That it won't be too late because he, yesterday, he's already telegraphed Marmee. She's on the train. And the very next thing out of Joe's mouth is, of course, argumentative because that's <laughs> how they roll. But she can't leave father. Why do you never listen to me? <laughs> like, Did you not understand that he just saved you from yourself, basically? And then you have to yell at him. Well, poor Lori. Anyway, he just wants what's best for her, which seems a little paternalistic of him to say. Well, he's
1: already taken on the man of the house role, kind of. You know, in talking with Amy about going to stay at Aunt March's house, he just seemed very man of the house, you know, and telling the girls that they really needed to contact their mother in that scene before it. You know, he's kind of taken on that role, I think, man of the house while well, father's gone, which I bet is what upsets Joe, because I think she sees herself as the man of the
0: house. Oh, that's true. And, and in the book, I know she markets herself that way. Also, speaking of the book, I do believe that Laurie got the agreement of his grandfather to contact her. He, uh, I can't remember the exact wording, but he got the conversation, worked up to such a pitch that his grandfather said, you should telegraph yourself. And upon that authority, he went and telegraphed. But he was the one that instigated it in the first place. So no need to say that. Although I kind of wish I had seen that conversation. We don't get enough of old Mr. Lawrence, I think. There's whole scenes where Joe... And um, Mr. Lawrence have uh, respectfully argumentative interactions that I wish that we had seen in any adaptation. And we haven't.
1: No, and Dumbledore is the best actor they've got. They could have given him a little bit more to work with. Joe and Laurie try to accept the reality of Beth's situation by the fire. And Laurie tries to comfort with claret and kisses and gets friend
0: zoned for his efforts. Well, okay, so technically the wine is for Beth. And Joe sort of loses her temper here. She, she's like, Beth cannot swallow anything. Does no one understand that? She doesn't even look like herself. It's like she's already gone and she's taken half my soul. And then she says something I sort of don't get. She says that I can't find God in any of it. This is literally where I wrote, let Susan talk. Um, as a Christian, I
1: appreciated this particular scene because that's a very real emotion. And when things are happening like this, we like to think that just because you have this faith you know, guiding you through your life, you can cruise through these situations and you can't because life is a series of questioning God. There's no other way to put it. I mean, your arguments get different and, you know, your deal making disappears kind of. But yeah, I thought that was very real. And I think as far as this adaptation goes, it's been real God light. So I think just throwing that one thing in because the book is a lot heavier Mm-hmm. with with Christian morality and everything. And um, so I think just throwing that one thing in was kind of a nod to all of it. It's like an umbrella. So I thought it was good.
0: All right, well, very good. Well, moving on without thinking, she says, we have no mother and no father to help us endure it. Can you imagine how that feels? And the way that Lori says, yes, I can. <sighs> he doesn't have the socially acceptable venue of tears like the girls do. I really feel for him. And, you know, poor guy, he has had to deal with a very recent loss of his mother with no confidant. He is in a place and Joe immediately, to her credit, feels very remorseful and calls him Teddy, which I think is the first time we hear her do it.
1: I want to say that she called him Teddy when they were on the uh, carriage coming back from dropping Meg off.
0: Okay, maybe. Yeah,
1: yeah. But it did start in this episode that she started calling him Teddy.
0: Well, Teddy says, I'll help you to endure it with his 16-year-old smolder, which is maybe not your fully paid up 30, 40-something version. It's like the roaring of a very tiny kitten. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Teddy. Well, when she thanks him... Um, for telegraphing Marmy. He says he was worried that she would let fly at him. And then he admits he's sort of likes it when she's mad at him. I do not myself enjoy an argumentative relationship, but I can <coughs> see how it is delightful to some. <laughs> uh, his body language is getting very affectionate. We can all see it coming. Can Joe? Not sure. Well, he uh, he does say that someone will carry Joe off one day. And there is a definite note of warning in her voice. I don't want them to and i don't know why that is an invitation for a kiss which he kisses her i'm not sure why except for is it some sort of trial balloon like let us see how this goes I just don't know. She doesn't recoil. I mean, she's not like, what? You know, she's uh, not upset by it.
1: No, he's supposed to be a teenage boy. And when else is he going to be that intimate with a woman? I don't mean intimate in the but, you know, that close touching her hair. I mean, somebody that he really does love. He had to make the move. He had to see if it would work.
0: Well, let's just call this experiment failure. (laughs) but that's okay that's okay you know he's a little bummed but not grievously wounded or anything when she simply says please just stay my comfortable friend he's mostly okay
1: yeah well yeah and I think having lost his parents too he knows that she's emotionally vulnerable even if he can't articulate it he handled it well I think
0: But to go with your earlier comment, I have to say, I don't like the concept of a friend zone. I think that whole, I don't like it. I mean, you might as well say, and this is just as true, that Lori keeps putting Joe in the girlfriend zone. And it's the other side of that same coin. She does not wish to be in the girlfriend zone. Do you know what I'm saying? Any more than he wants to be in what people call the friend zone. It's just a place you don't want to be. But it's equally as valid to say he keeps trying to put her in a box.
1: You're absolutely correct.
0: Okay. What would be the better, like you have a relationship,
1: somebody obviously loves you or cares for you in a way that you don't care for them, but you don't want to get them out of your life. What do you do?
0: Just say I'm not attracted to you in that way.
1: Isn't it the same thing? I mean, isn't this the concept the same? The wording is just different. I just think
0: it has the connotation that the woman is inflicting some sort of unwarranted punishment on her male friend. When it's really not that simple and it's not fair to put the whole burden of his expectations on her. It really bothers me. To
1: me, it just seems like a universal way to describe a situation that happens quite frequently. So you let us know. (laughs) Okay, Meg goes outside to get a breath of fresh air. It's nighttime and she finds a treasure for Beth.
0: It's the last one of Amy's white roses that she planted right around the doorway. And it's unusual for it to have lasted this long. And Meg thinks she might've caught it right before it dies. It's never gonna last through the night in this cold wind. And so she puts it by Beth's bed with the idea that she's gonna see this first. The second thing she's going to see is our mother's face. And then the sisters have a serious conversation, kind of a bargaining situation. If God spares her, I will never complain again. And then Joe says, if God spares her, I will love him all my days. A completely book-accurate conversation that, of course, I have giant philosophical differences with, but it doesn't matter. We should just note that bargaining is the third stage of grief, just behind denial and anger and ahead of depression and acceptance. So evidently they're halfway there. On a less serious note, do you remember the opening sequence, one of the flowers that was Mm -hmm. growing?
1: Mm-hmm. It was a white rose. I got to point out all the horticulture points.
0: <laughs> now, So I'm wondering then, because in the book, there are Amy's roses that she planted. I wonder if Amy's the white rose or if Beth is the white rose.
1: Well, I don't want to spoil, but later there's white roses associated with Meg. Oh. Having already seen it, I know that in the third episode, we find out who get,
0: who's what flower. <laughs>
1: What kind of flower are you? Speaking of which, which March sister were you?
0: Well, much to my surprise, I actually turned out to be Joe. although I, I don't know that it was a very, very thorough investigation in my innermost soul. But it says, whether you're a tomboy, a writer or a rebel, you have a lot to say and you're certain to say it with creativity and sincerity, though not necessarily with tact or forethought. Having a strong will And a free spirit can be a blessing and a curse. But with your tremendous moxie, watch out, world. Okay. All righty. Joe says, but if this is what life is, how hard it is, I don't know how I'll ever get through it. They're really at an extraordinarily low point. And right, right after that comment, Meg discovers that Beth's hands are colder than they have been. And we don't know what that means. But Joe's look down at Beth could be anything bad or good. And I think we're supposed to think she died. So we're in a little bit of a quiver right now. I know I was quivering too, because I wasn't sure.
1: Actually, I thought it meant that she was nearing death if she hadn't died already. Mm. That's Mm -hmm. what, you know, when I was watching it, that's what I thought. So, but then there's horses, there's horses and Marmy gets
0: home and races to Beth's side. I love her running in. Her cloak is all billowing and the music's getting tenser. And we kind of quick cut from Hannah looking at Beth, Hannah, the expert, the older lady who's been nursing a long time versus Marmy just running through the snow. It's really a good heightening of tension. And Marmy runs upstairs and Hannah says, the fever's turned. She's breathing, not. It's good. It's the best outcome possible. I'm so happy. It's the
1: best outcome possible, but the timing just, I had a hard time accepting it, (laughs) to be perfectly honest. I was like, really? The minute she walks in the room, Beth's fever breaks. Come on.
0: (laughs) Well, no, it's not that moment. Joe and Meg woke up when they heard the carriage. She could have turned at any time during the night. Everyone was asleep, right? I guess. I guess, and that would have been the
1: moment that they realized it because they hadn't been paying her any physical attention. Yeah, okay, all right, but it's already it's already been ruined for me because there is no first again.
0: (laughs) I think Jane Austen does that too. By the way, Marianne's out of danger. She's out of danger. Right when her mom gets there, it's a classic. It's a classic. It's kind of a trope, but to be perfectly fair to these
1: authors it wasn't back when they wrote those books oh (laughs) that's true
0: it was come from somewhere that's right this is the seeds (laughs) well beth saw marmy first not the flower that's even better and when beth asks if father came marmy says no but he's getting so much better which could Be true. A lot of time has passed, at least a few months. The timeline is a little crazy, but time has passed. And Marmy's not known for being deceptive right to your face, although she will omit things in a letter, (laughs) evidently. (laughs) So I guess I'm going to err on the side that Marmy is telling the truth. So that's good. Hooray. Yay. I thought it was the truth.
1: Then we get a beautiful friend vignette of Lori and Joe on the stairs.
0: I love this scene. She whispers, thank you. And her head is on his shoulder. It is so sincere. And I think there were onions in my room or some (laughs) kind of pollen was happening because my eyes went all watery. It's weird. I don't know what happened.
1: I don't know, but it happened to me too. First words in my notes, (laughs) eyeballed when she whispers. Yeah. Yeah. It was so sweet, especially considering that they'd had this test of their friendship and this attempt to define it. So having had that emotional um, conversation earlier and hello, her first kiss. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, it was beautiful. And it was all in browns and they're framed by the doorway. I think this might have been my favorite little shot cinematically in this entire show. And
0: there's a lot of nice ones. I am going to stand by this is a better Joe. Um, just all around better Joe.
1: There's no argument at all in my mind.
0: Okay. It
1: is nearing Christmas and Joe, Lori, Meg, and Amy entertain Beth from outside.
0: So the kids have built a snow maiden. It's not a snowman. It is a snow maiden outside the window. They've crowned her with laurels and um, put a basket of oranges in her stick arm and Beth and Marmy and Hannah are the audience in the warm inside the house watching this cockamamie act which started out rough I will say it did start out rough I'm sort of sad that this is the only theatrical we get but it's still pretty cute um, get it together people to the tune of God rest you merry gentlemen they have rewritten to be all about Beth. So there's a line that said, accept this maiden and this glad grenade from Meg, Lori, Amy, and Joe. And right when good grenade goes off, Lori lets off a sparkler. (laughs) Woo, it's so awesome. And then it's jazz hands for everybody and some bone kisses. (laughs) It was really cute. It was like the sort of dorky, one-time rehearse thing that you always do with your friends when you're a kid. And I really liked it. I liked it a lot. I, I did, too. And it, it, you went
1: from the previous scene, which was heavy in emotion and dark, to this bright and sunny, snowy day and joyfulness. I, I love the contrast so quickly.
0: We needed it.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we sure did. Frankly. But we're going to get a little more serious. Joe narks on Meg to Marmy about Mister Gross Pocket Glove Brook, only to discover only to discover that Marmy's feelings about him have changed, and Joe can't deal.
0: She brings in some kittens, which I'm already like, is kitten season in April and May? Has time passed? Are these the same kittens? Are these different kittens? Why is there a basket of kittens? in my life at all. I don't even know. Well, my goodness. I hope they all find good homes. Joe wants to talk. And Marmy, used to raising daughters, I think... She heads off the tattling by saying Meg's already fessed up to the Moffat thing. In the book, in fact, Marmee was worried a little that Joe is going to reveal that Ned Moffat has been calling on Meg. I had forgotten that whole other subplot. Meg might get sucked into the upper classes just for money. So there's that little worry. Also, in fact, book Joe makes a good try at matchmaking for Lori and Meg right here. Um, which they don't include in the movie. Uh-uh. Well, Marmy's watching the pudding steam, and Jo is letting the steam come out of her head. She tells the story of John Brooke stealing Meg's glove as if there's going to be a clap of thunder. She tells that story three times in one minute, in this one conversation, <laughs> by the way. And when Marmee just simply asks, do you think Meg cares for John? John. Like, who's John? And Marmee explains they got kind of close to Mr. Brooke in the hospital. They like him. And Marmee has a thunderbolt of her own for Joe. Mr. Brooke has already spoken to them about Meg. Spoken, spoken to them about his hopes for the future. And my goodness. And Marmy tries to get to the bottom of why Joe's upset. And she is upset. She is about change. I think about growing up. My little child always used to say, I wish I could stay small. It's very scary growing up. And it is. And you know, her family's going to break up. Mm-hmm. It's natural, says Marmee, that all of you should go to homes of your own one day. And Joe's solution is I'd marry her myself if I could keep her in the family. And Margie kind of laughs. I think that would be a very odd arrangement.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that was funny. She was very much a Peter Pan. I mean, she's been this way every time there's a mention of, you know, Meg having any kind of romance. Mm -hmm. But I just can't. Okay, I get why she's kind of creeped out about the glove thing, but it's so overdone
0: hmm.
1: It's like I mean, her face is like he was doing something gross with the glove. And honestly, he just had it in his pocket as a memento,
0: which is pretty I- touching. It's not like it's a lock of her hair that he stole in the night after sneaking through her window with a big bowie knife. You know, it's not like, <laughs> <laughs> OK, that would be creepy. That would be.
1: And if you like smelled it every day. and Oh,
0: I can't so <laughs> think about that.
1: <laughs> but that's the face that Joe is making when she's like in his pocket
0: it's like she's saying
1: in his underpants i know thank you i was trying to think of a good way to say that because that's how i thought of it based on her reaction i'm like come on girl but i'm probably a little more sophisticated than joe I think not much,
0: but a little bit. So Marmy and Father have insisted on not a three-year engagement. That's kind of the implied thing if you're a modern ear, but actually a three-year courtship. It's very clear in the book that they won't let Meg, quote, bind herself in any way until she's 20. And she's 17 now. Um, they won't even let them get engaged. That's not where we are. We are at the... You may consider yourself welcome to call on her, but she may not commit to you. Mm -hmm. They sort of let go on that later, but that's what their (laughs) agreement was.
1: Yeah. And Joe, again, she freaks out about that. Three years, that's no time at all. Seems (laughs) like a long time to me. And when I was, what is she, 15? When I was 15, three years would be an eternity.
0: Right. Well, and then when she first says three years, I think, I know, right? That's too long of an engagement. It's, no, she goes the other way with that. It was quite a surprise. Marmy, of course, says, I would like to keep all my girls as long as I can, but I also want real love for all of you from good men. And then she says something very profound to Joe. The former takes time to flourish. That would be real love. And the latter are not lightly found. So me, of course... Yeah, it didn't take that much time to flourish. I was relatively engaged to my husband after 30 hours of knowing him. But yes, I agree. I got a rare and great one. So Marmee is half right. <laughs> yeah, I thought
1: this was really profound. As a matter of fact, I am going to take this advice into my own parenting life. Mm. Because I thought that was good.
0: Yeah, I don't have to say anything. It says it all. Mm hmm. And Meg doesn't love John yet, says Marmy, but she will and everyone will have to bear it. And this is so not the answer Joe wants that she storms <laughs> out of the room on Marmy.
1: <laughs> yeah, she's not happy with this at all. So
0: <laughs> where did she go?
1: Joe heads up to her garret to work it all out by writing all night long and then a book is finished.
0: She channels all that rage right into her pen. The hat is on. The apples are in her face. The old props from the book. Genius is burning upstairs, or at least the fires of anger. I don't know which. Maybe they're the same thing. Maybe, but whatever gets you
1: to go from the beginning to the end, you take it and you run with it, whether it's happiness or sadness or a deadline, (laughs) (laughs) you just do it. You just take that energy and put it all out there. So I I love that. And I love the uh, routine that she has. You know, she puts her hat on and she lights the candles. I just thought it was get everything set and then write. Right like crazy. It was lovely. And they had this stream of moonlight. Again, it was very pretty, I thought. Very it had a lot of mood to it.
0: Very painterly um in its depiction, I thought. Yeah.
1: Okay, but then she gets up in the morning she's laying on the sofa and it's morning and she's dressed. So I had I didn't understand. Are we supposed to think that she this has taken a couple days?
0: I think she fell asleep in her clothes.
1: Uh, she was writing in her nightwear.
0: Was she? I guess I thought she left from The Marmy conversation went straight up, put the hat on. Right. She had it was white. I maybe
1: okay. maybe I just assumed that it was her nightwear because it was white, but maybe it was some type of dress up costume that she used to write her writing cloak or whatever. And it just happened to be white. Yeah, I didn't watch it close enough because I just thought she was still wearing her pajamas. (laughs)
0: Well, and it could have been a couple of days. The way that this show does time is super confusing to me. It always shows these pictures of like, look, the icicles are melting. And I thought, well, now, is this a a year later? Is this, what is this? What does this mean? I don't know. (laughs) I'm confused by the time. I, I could have used little cards, frankly, and I don't usually need those that say July 1863 or whatever it is. I really honestly could have used them during this entire adaptation.
1: Yeah, I agree. Even in this, it's like Tuesday would be nice. And then, you know, Thursday or is it Thursday or is it Wednesday, you know, when she wakes up. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I thought it was really cool how they had that sofa that she was laying on their Garrett sofa. It's like all scratched up from cats, I (laughs) assume.
0: Yes, I am here to tell you that's what they do.
1: That was pretty realistic. I mean, mean, you could just make it shabby, but they just like took the extra step, their prop department. Funny. Lori spies a very jolly fa la la Joe heading not to the dentist.
0: You can't catch her in the street if you see her face. She's exhausted, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) I have done many overnight editing sessions where I look very similar to that. It's very um. My grandma used to call it owly, where you're just like (laughs) bug eyed and stunned with the daylight. You're blinking at it like so. She looks sort of hungover actually by tiredness, and she has slipped into a doorway that is prominently labeled dentist, with a little sign to the right that says the spread eagle, which is a tabloid paper. But Lori guesses, as the viewer is supposed to, dentist. Yes.
1: You know, that mood that she was in, exhausted and just, I don't care what happens at this point. I need to get this out, probably is the only thing that got her there. Because in the book, she hems and haws
0: outside for quite a while. But this one, she just straight in. We get a tiny, tiny little flashback to Orchard House where Meg is leading Beth down the stairs and there is too much exposition. (laughs) It's almost like, why are you bringing me down the stairs? I usually do not come down the stairs until later in the day. Why is it different today? It's like,
1: (laughs) really? (sighs) It was a bit much, but this... Is all the beginning of the extraordinarily happy sequence. This is the only way I can think about it. You know, we went through all that sadness, so now we're going to have some positivity. Positivity. <laughs> we're, <laughs> now we're going to have a, some positivity. So I think that was kind of cool.
0: Um, I would like to state that that is another Susan Malaprop for those <laughs> of you. Oh my gosh! Count. I am Amy.
1: Anyway, okay. Lori meets Joe outside of the dentist with a treat, but Joe tells him she wasn't at the dentist and the ashes of the peacock has made her celebratory.
0: I brought you a bag of oranges, he said out of nowhere. What, she says? I thought it would be better than nuts. Okay, Lori, from me to you, if someone's been to the 19th century dentist, you need to think in terms of mashed potatoes and laudanum. (laughs) (laughs) The sign on the dentist says Extractions without tears And I'm going to tell you my eye Unless they hit you in the head with a skillet And you're out They're going to pull your teeth With basically some Needle nose pliers
1: Her face didn't even look like She would have come from the dentist Maybe Lori has no dental experience Like if
0: she had gone through a dentist thing Sure her face would have been all puffy Right I don't know. I don't know if one went for a cleaning. I think you would go in dire circumstances, so Mm -hmm. I'm not 100% sure. But she hasn't been to the dentist anyway. She's been to the newspaperman, who has agreed to take one of her stories. Then we get a little view as to what these stories are. The one where the Duke goes mad after he wins a haunted castle in a card game? Oh, no. It's the one with the chase through the catacombs of Paris. The one with the duel where two people drink hemlock. It's like, oh, okay. (laughs) i love that i thought it was so cute but in my head i'm going you couldn't have
1: written rodrigo into this little exchange just like one rodrigo in there would have like been such a nice treat for those of us who know the story
0: a little tiny gift to the fan base
1: (laughs) i know it would have been nice just one rodrigo that's all i'm asking for but
0: he's so happy for her
1: I mean, he can't be more
0: delirious. Hooray for Miss March, celebrated American authoress, he says. And in the book, he throws his hat to the delight of two ducks, four cats, five hens, and half a dozen Irish children. In the adaptation, he gets reactions from no one. Except Joe, who is embarrassed that he's screaming, but not that embarrassed. She kind of likes it.
1: Yay. No, of course she's excited and she's not embarrassed, I don't think. Can Joe get embarrassed?
0: she tries to make him stop yelling she does she's like stop stop
1: her heart wasn't in that stop (laughs) (laughs) then joe kind of reflects back on their time and she says last year i was a bad-tempered girl complaining that she wasn't getting any christmas presents i love this exchange and he said and i was the loneliest boy on earth this whole scene is really sweet just a good description of their relationship
0: She does say, I do want to be her because she didn't know anything. And I'm paraphrasing here. She didn't know how sucky and painful this year was going to be. So she was blissfully ignorant. But on the other hand, she wouldn't give up that year because she went through so many things that she's grown into a whole different person that follows through on her dreams. And so there you go. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Lori remembers, wait, oh, I have been sent to fetch you like uh, an hour ago. (laughs) You're (laughs) needed at home. And I forgot about that. We got to go. So there you go. It is Christmas
1: at Orchard House and there is surprises for Beth and more reason to celebrate when Joe comes home and sees there's another big surprise.
0: Joe comes in the door and I love, love everybody's expression on their face is like a secret little anticipation. They can't stop looking at Joe's face because they can't look away at the moment Joe experiences the great joy. So at first, Joe thinks the surprise is the piano. Well, that's glorious enough. She's happy for Beth, yay, a piano. And then she turns and sees father is the big surprise. And so everyone gets their glorious moment of seeing Joe's happy face. I thought it was lovely. It was like a joy upon joy scene. And uh, I had to
1: suspend a little historical understanding and kind of not make Father um, Bronson Alcott for just a minute. I'm not a big fan. So I had a problem when I was watching this show trying to overcome that. I think there was a lot of similarities um, between more than a lot of things in this show between Bronson and Father. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We don't know that yet,
0: but yes, I can see how you have like hidden resentment. Mm -hmm. And what we're referring to is we covered the life of Louisa May Alcott on our other show, The History Chicks, and Bronson Alcott was not perhaps the most helpful of fathers in an era where a father could make or break a whole family. Okay. I love that that everybody's there too. You know, all
1: the kids are there. There's, you know, both of them, Mr. Lawrence's and John Brooke is there and Hannah's there.
0: It's kind of a little curtain call, like a mid-show curtain call.
1: Yes. And joyful. They could have ended it right there, couldn't they? (laughs) Well, sure. (laughs) (laughs) Just fade to black and have the happy music in the background. Because it began at Christmas time, so ended at
0: Christmas time. Somehow, I think with all the missing plot points and scenes, we just might not have ended up with an American classic. (laughs) But maybe we would have ended up with a Hallmark or Lifetime movie or TV special. And there is a certain value to those two. They would certainly spare us a lot of pain.
1: But then we miss a lot, so (laughs) can't do that.
0: Father gets back to work. It's been a long time,
1: but John Brooke comes and interrupts him, and he does look kind of dashing in his Union uniform, but he wants to see Meg.
0: Well, Father is sitting at his desk and he is looking at his stacked papers like, hello, my old friend. And then he blows and I fully expected dust to come off in that old way that we are supposed to realize it's been a sitting out for a while. But it's (laughs) actually a moth. Well, there's a nice little twist. And I'm not sure which book this is supposed to be. They're good. Later in the show with specific titles from reality, he published a book called Tablets in 1868. I don't know if that's it. I could have sworn I saw the word Reflections and my screen cap does not allow for the clarity in the writing, so I couldn't really tell. And there's no book that he wrote called Reflections, so I don't know what it is supposed to be. Hmm. I don't want to spoil another scene,
1: so I'm not going to say anything about that yet.
0: So Marmee ushers John in, and he says, "I thank you, John, for your loyalty and the service you are about to do for our country." And he, he is pretty cute. He offers to have him sit down, and Father has to have it pointed out to him patiently that, dearest, he's here to see Meg. You bumbling doofus! Ah. Oh. <laughs> Ah <laughs> oh, says father and gives him that old fatherly shoulder smack. <laughs> 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 oh, my goodness, father. Yeah,
1: it's, he's, it's taking him a little while to catch up to the pace of being in a family, which I guess is probably something that happens when people come back from war, right?
0: Or anywhere, even a business trip or something. Oh, that's you, true. Yeah. yeah. And I, you know, I actually was wondering about Marmy too. Marmy has been so accustomed to running things herself. You know how you get in a pattern and here's, a guy that's technically the boss of her is back interfering if I do say so with the whole peace and serenity of the household again. I mean, you love him, but it's like, mm, we don't typically do that, but okay. You know?
1: (laughs) Yeah. I have to cook. My husband's gone. I don't really cook too much, but when he comes back, I have to cook again. Yeah. I get it.
0: (laughs) I'm trying to think if there's an indication in my house when Chris is no, not really, because he keeps himself super busy. The only indication I can sense is that the pile of shoes by the door gets more various and large. Because when he's gone, I shovel those in an old ice chest that I have by the door. But when he's home home, he likes them out or he can select from them. Well, and based on going to your house, there's also um,
1: curiosities that appear when Chris is
0: around. That is definitely true. Like cement mixers in the yard. What is this? Oh, it's a cement mixture from like the 20s. Cool. (laughs) What are we going to do? Is it a planter? I'm not sure. (laughs) You you just try to integrate it, you know, uh, into your scenario and uh, everything is a certain shade of brown. It all kind of goes. That's right. Even inside your house, like furniture appears. Yes, there is a displaced four drawer wooden filing cabinet sitting in my dining room right now. (laughs) See,
1: just like that.
0: <laughs> so you're right. I guess there are impacts left from a little idle time. <laughs> I think it's cute. Your house is like a
1: curiosity shop, actually.
0: Yes, it is. I love that. Instead of dusting, I just move. <laughs> 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 oh, don't listen, <laughs> Hannah and Marmy, Don't listen. <laughs> or even Susan. Oh, my goodness.
1: <laughs> Aunt March announces her firing of Joe and that she's found a much more suitable companion in Amy, and Amy is delighted.
0: (laughs) I wasn't sure about that. Amy uh, comes in and says, I polished your silver toilette set and I put it back in your bedroom. And then Aunt March has come to a decision. Get your tippet, which is like a fur wrap. I wish to address your parents about your future. She speaks of Joe as a great windmill of a girl. And I, myself, need a polished, refined companion such as yourself. And I could not tell how Amy feels about this yet. Amy does like being in the lap of luxury. I don't think she had a fur tippet before she got to Aunt March's house, for, for one. Um, it will be the making of her eventually. We're not completely clear on how Amy feels about this replacement uh, job.
1: No, I at the beginning of the conversation when Aunt March was kind of bestowing compliments to Amy, she just kind of looks like, OK, I'm going to get something here. Maybe it's the pearls, you know, It's <laughs> just in my head. It's something that was in that drawer. She's going to give me something really cool. And then in Aunt March's mind, it
0: was really cool. But on
1: Amy's face, at that face, she's like, oh, no.
0: Maybe she's anticipating the turquoise ring from the book. Mm hmm. The maid told her, was coming, if you behave yourself, she's got it set aside with a little guard so it fits your finger. And maybe she was thinking, and now I get the turquoise ring. And she's like, oh, and now she's giving me the brass ring. And it kind of sucks and I don't want it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but uh, March is so pleased with herself. She's just nodding her head like, yes, isn't this going to be great? Back at Orchard House, John has a private conversation with Meg and a very unhappy Joe is kicked out of the room.
0: So we see Joe and Meg in the living room, the morning room, whatever it is. And Joe's hair is significantly longer. So time has passed. How much time? I don't know how fast hair grows anymore. Mine just shoots out of my head. That's why I can never keep it short because five minutes later I have to go back. Um, So Joe bristles when Mr. Brooke is announced and comes in. And she says, I'll tell him you don't want to talk to him. And Meg is really... Taken aback. Well, don't, because I do. It's pretty cute. She does want to talk to him. And ooh ee, Joe's glare as she tries to slam those pocket doors. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that can't be slammed. Yeah.
0: She says it like right in front of him. It's not
1: even, you know, now it's like, okay, text me in five minutes with an emergency. She doesn't even care that he's standing right there. You don't have to talk to him if you don't want to. And that same, he's got your glove in his pocket, disgust that she has. It's right in front of him. How rude is that? Well,
0: everybody does. Aunt march does too here in a minute. It's like, you know, maybe you get used to, if you're a tutor, you get used to some snubbing or. More likely, you're so well brought up that you pretend not to notice things that are uncomfortable. That is what the well brought up person does, is you ignore a social calf as if it hadn't happened and just move on. So okay. go either way. Well so he takes Meg's hand and she's nervous. She starts to tremble and he backs right off. I won't take your hand if if you don't wish it. I I just want to ask you if you care for me, even a little. And she replies, quite honestly, that she doesn't know. And it was so good. It was not full of coquettish behavior. She simply says, I don't have an answer for you, (laughs) which is good. And he says, I shall wait and I shall fight. And if I'm spared, I'll come home and work. I shall not falter. Only pray that you will love me as much as I love you. Where his British accent leaks out at the end. I'm sorry to say. Oh, I missed that. Now I'm going to have to go back. But that's okay. I didn't mind it. It was so delightful and sincere that I was like, la, la, la. Didn't hear it. I'm going (laughs) to pretend like a properly raised person. That didn't just happen. And she says, what if I don't choose to love you? And he says, I will have to try to bear it. Now, I'm sorry, Louise May Alcott. This scene was better written and better performed than the original book. Brooke was paternalistic and overconfident in a way that I did not care for. And Meg in the book was channeling the whole contrary flirting ways of her ballroom friends. It was more like Brooke was saying, come on, babe, you know you want me. I'm paraphrasing. And <laughs> yeah. See if you can guess this movie quote for how I viewed Meg's response in the book. You think you're too cool for school. Well, I have a news flash for you, Walter Cronkite. You aren't. <laughs> Pop culture reference for you. Okay, so this is better is my short version of what I'm saying. Meg's asking, if I don't choose to love you, What what is our path? What does it look like? What are the consequences? And he's saying he'll survive. Uh, that's okay. I think that's good. This will be okay if you don't choose to love me. I, I just am going to live in hope and and it's fine. I don't want to pressure you. And I, that is so much better than the book. I can hardly stand it.
1: I'm, I like this John Brooke a lot.
0: Yes, I do too.
1: But their deep conversation, it gets interrupted because Aunt March has decided that this is a good time to come in. And she's just griping about everything, like not having a maid at the door to greet her. And they're sewing on the chair that she wants to sit on, even though there's an identical chair empty right across from it. And she makes Meg move the stuff and she plops herself down and she's her usual cantankerous, no-filter self.
0: And then once she's seated, I need you to explain the presence of this military gentleman and why are your cheeks so pink? I dare say the two are connected. I demand an explanation and man, Aunt March sure knows how to command a room. I'm gonna give her that. So she discovers, as the English lady did in the boat, that John Brooke is not of the upper classes. That is not a name I've heard of in connection with the finer families of Massachusetts. And she discovers he's the Lawrence Boys tutor. Ah, mm, A head full of notions and coffers full of air. In Aunt March's defense, she is very consistent here. This is literally the exact same situation that she perceives her nephew had been in. A head full of philosophy and no head for work. So she's trying to spare her niece from experiencing the same fate. Divulge your intended mischief, she says to John Brooke. (laughs) And then he says, there's no mischief, but I have just made a proposal of marriage. And I thought, did he? I didn't hear one. And it looks to me like Meg didn't hear one either. She looks very surprised. Like, was that what that was? (laughs) Like, well,
1: well. I did not hear one either because I'm like, wait, I had to back it up. That doesn't sound like a proposal of marriage, does it? Yeah, I was blown away just as much as you and Meg.
0: (laughs) So with that knowledge, that that was the intention of that conversation, Also, the magnificent irritant of Aunt March threatening to leave her out of her will, Meg becomes Joe for a second. (laughs) Meg's polite kitten-like exterior becomes Joe's thorny, angry one and says, although she does say it in a polite enough tone, I will marry who I please and you may leave your money to anyone you like. So the content of her statement is Joe. Uh, Yeah. It's Joe with Meg sauce. Aunt March has been extremely consistent. Before
1: she was just talking in theory. Now it's a fact in front of her that her great niece could do the one thing
0: that she didn't want any of her great nieces to do. Oh, and then she goes on a diatribe about the young, which sounds like everybody talking about, quote, the millennials. If I was a millennial, I would be sick of this whole situation. The young have some kind of spice of perversity when they're touched with ideas of romance, which leads to bitter reflection. Ask your impractical parents how that went she says now was that wise to throw someone's parents who she idolizes and loves under the bus as a bad example i don't think so your duty she says number one respect your elders i love that <laughs> <laughs> but aunt march thinks that she should marry for money and provide for the family like one of you should And I think the implication in the book is that Meg's, quote, the pretty one who has the best chance to marry for money and therefore lift her family out of the situation. Meg has a good point. I will marry well because John loves me. And then she, you can see it crossing her face. She realizes it too. And I love him. Yay. Yay. It was really cute. The actress delivered it.
1: So pretty. There's like, she's giggling. And I love him. Oh my gosh. I can't (laughs) believe I'm saying this. It was well done, I think.
0: And I thought it was hilarious how Aunt March just keeps going on and on. I'm done with you. I wash my hands of you. Blah, 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 blah. And the other two people in the room are so shocked by what revelation just came out of Meg's face. that They <laughs> don't even hear it. It's just washing over them. She leaves the room and they hardly even notice. <laughs> no, they do laugh. And there was a little bit of a
1: laugh. I thought they were laughing at her. Like, you know, when somebody does something really Wackadoodle a doodle in front of you. And you're just like laughing because you're like, is this for real? You know, I mean, she was, she was heavy handed with this, you know, you're out of my will. And I was thinking that perhaps Meg and John could name their first daughter after Aunt March, because it was because of her, you know, that they got married. If Meg hadn't had this conversation with her aunt, she might not have realized it. They should have a lot of gratitude toward Aunt March, I think. In the next scene, the girls are all singing in perfect harmony to the Marches and the Lawrences and the Brook. And this is setting the scene to pass a lot of time.
0: I have to admit that this song makes me feel so sad, and I'm not sure why. It's called The Land of the Leal, which was a poem by Lady Caroline Nairn, a Scottish one. Leal means faithful. It's, it's the land of the faithful. And it's a pretty mournful song, pretty mournful lyrics, frankly, a woman who's dying and saying goodbye to her husband, saying, our child is there in the Leal waiting for me, and we'll be waiting for you. In a place where there's no more sorrow and no more worry, which I didn't even know the lyrics when I heard it. It's something about the chords. I don't know. The melody itself does something to me. It's like the sound of nostalgia and grief all mixed up. Do you think? it's? Just- oh, I did.
1: I thought it was very melancholy because the few words that I c- could pick out, it sounded like they were talking about a John going away. And that's all I could really understand without you know, and first listen.
0: So you hear them singing in the background of the next few scenes. You you know, there's no sorrow there, John, there's neither cold nor care, John. The day is I fare in the land of the Leo. And this song and all of its verses goes through the next few scenes Why don't we do these one at a time? Because they're all like little video vignettes almost. Okay. So first there's John going off to war. Which if you see him, he looks back and Meg puts her hand over her heart. Mm. And with the combination of that music, it's like. "Mm -hmm." (laughs) And Lori is packing up to go to college. And Marmy is fondly checking things off his college packing list like his own mother would have done if she were here. Um, <laughs> she <laughs> rolls her eyes when he puts the baseball mitt in the trunk, by the way, which I thought was really cute. Yeah, it was.
1: That's health. Seems to be deteriorating, but she is in charge of keeping a scrapbook of Joe's many published pieces.
0: And if you look closely, you can see Transcendental Wild Oats in there, which was Louisa May Alcott's take on her family's failed attempt at making a utopian community where everybody almost starved to death. (laughs) All the other clippings are Louisa May Alcott titles, too, Though the paper, of course, attributes them to 1J March. And Joe looks back at Beth, who has been tired out by holding the scissors, which is a book reference. I think that is when Joe has a realization that Beth is probably not going to get better. I see it in her face. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. And then the camera moves to Lori up at college where he is wearing some sort of cloak that gives him very broad shoulders, in fact. And he is looking off into the middle distance. And I can only surmise, due to the mournful nature of the music, that he is thinking of Joe. Amy is painting a portrait of her favorite subject, (laughs) herself. (laughs) It was really good, though, right? I know. Whoever painted it did such a good job. I hope they let that actress keep it after. I hope. It's a really good likeness of her.
1: Yeah, it is. And it tells us that her artistic skill is advancing, you know, from the charcoal drawing she did of Marmy.
0: Correct. Yeah.
1: Correct. Now it's much, much better. And then we see John at war and John
0: injured in the war the Civil War had the worst odds of soldier survival of any conflict that the United States has ever fought. A soldier had a 1 in 15 chance of dying. In contrast, in World War II, he had a 1 in 58. And in Vietnam, it actually rises to 1 in 185. The Civil War was an extraordinarily dangerous place to be. And John shows us that. Meg gets a
1: telegram while she's outside Orchard House and John has been injured.
0: Do you see the realism? It's a little boy bringing the telegrams now, if you'll notice. Oh, I missed that too. (laughs) The menfolk are disappearing. The able-bodied men cannot be spared to deliver telegraphs. You've got like a nine or eight-year-old boy.
1: Oh, good catch.
0: In the military hospital, we see a much more grown-up looking Lori. He is sitting beside John's bedside and John is reading a letter. And I'm going to assume it's the letter that Meg was writing earlier while looking at a picture of John. And he's alive and he's wounded, but he's sitting up and he has good color. And that's good. That's See, they gave us a little gift. <laughs> Yeah. We don't have to be stressed out for that long. That's right. Well, he did. He got shot in the shoulder is what
1: they showed. You know, his shoulder was all bloodied up when they put him on the wooden stretcher to carry him off the battlefield. So his arm is in a sling. And I guess they've got the bullet out. Now, Joe gets a letter of her own that leads her to have a conversation with her father, both outside and inside, about wedding preparations and about writing. Is it an occupation or a hobby?
0: Gosh, I don't know about this. I kind of liked it and I kind of like didn't like it. Joe says, Father, may I speak to you? And he says, is it about Meg's wedding? And then we get a little classic, boys don't know about lady stuff. (laughs) Veils versus bonnets, cakes versus pies, and the number of scuttles and dusters necessary when setting up house. (laughs) Yeah. Very father of the bride. So he says it will be a joy to converse about anything else. And you just wait, Charlie. I have a feeling you're not going to feel that way in about mm, two minutes and 17 seconds. Joe has evidently got an offer for $300 to publish her novel. That is 6,000 bones in today's money. So that is not sneezing money. So father is coming down on the side of artistic authenticity. Don't sell out to the man is his point. Look at this. They're asking for significant amendments. Ha! What do they know? Mm. joe or should i say in this case louisa may alcott she is adamant that no money is the thing they need more of in this house much more than we ever need artistic integrity <laughs> don't get me wrong and joe sort of shames him by h- how her stories are paying for things like rugs and your new shoes father and supplies for the invalid in the house and in this day and age the daughter of the house should not be seen as the provider she is saying to him at last as louisa may alcott said my writing is a tool that i use to provide things for people i love it is not high art i can't afford to sit back on my artistic integrity When somebody is offering me filthy lucre, he tells her not to spoil her book for the sake of more money. He says it like it's a dirty word. I
1: love that they kept Louisa May Alcott's view of writing in in this adaptation, too. Well, he says that he's been working on his manuscript for 20 years and that writing needs to ripen.
0: Joe is really seeing, I do believe, how frustrating her father's ideals have been. Louisa May Alcott's own father wouldn't work for a wage because he thought it was dirty and his kids nearly starved to death. Louisa May Alcott also once told her father that she was able to earn a living and I quote, even though my last name is Alcott. Yeah. Having known the reality of Brunson Alcott, I actually love the little crumbs they're giving us, but I understand why they couldn't go too much further down the road of like letting your children starve. And But I really like that he'd been sitting on this for 20 years and letting it percolate and she loses her crap and says, that is a luxury that I do not believe I can afford to have. And she storms out of the room. What I'm taking from this is the fact that Joe has just realized that if you need a hand, you have to just look at the end of your own arm. You cannot look at the head of your household.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: And they did throw in that he had gotten a job
1: as a minister. That wasn't
0: paying very much money, but yes. Yeah.
1: Yeah, exactly. So that was like a little, I am making money. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Are you making, you know, the equivalent of what, 140 bucks per piece? that she puts in the spread eagle. Marmy and father get ready for bed. They talk about Joe's book deal and they stress about the upcoming wedding.
0: Marmy is definitely on Joe's side. She has to send her book into the world the way we have to send our children into the world. Oh, we're back to wedding talk. Forget the book. Marmy's losing her crap, just like many mothers of brides, I think. And she's back to, I don't like my hat. And then borrowing trouble. I can't stop worrying if the cats are going to get a hold of the ham. Really? Put them in the closet and shut the door. Uh, it's going to be okay. You're just inventing things now. What if Thor comes down and steals us? What? There was an earthquake. Uh, it's fine. Uh, it's going to be fine. Uh, she needs a glass of medicinal claret for real. He should just go downstairs and pour her one.
1: <laughs> but instead, they're just going to bed. It is wedding day. It's a beautiful day, and we get all these vignettes of the preparation and the girls getting ready for the big
0: event. It's really sort of an echo of the cold open of the first episode. There's a lot of close-ups. There's a lot of giggling. What is happening is the girls are dressing the bride. They've stolen out to the garden at one point to get more white roses, presumably for Meg's hair.
1: White roses? So is Meg white rose? I don't know. Marmy comes in to see them and she is blown away by the perfection of her little women. And she kind of has an emotional moment. Uh, very much in Marmy style.
0: Oh, Marmy! She opens the door. She's just gone for hairpins, and she stops a little outside and hears all the the laughing. And the camera just kind of pans through the girls as she opens the door and sees them. And you can just see all the emotion. It's like the passage of time on Marmy's face. And man, there were just projectile tears on my part. I'm not even gonna pretend. <laughs> that there were onions. I mean, Marmy holds it together, unlike me. And until she gets out of the room, all she says is, I want to kiss you all, but I'm afraid it would turn into throwing my arms around you and ruining all of this perfection. And she just like puts the hairpins on a table and goes and kind of stands outside the door. And I'm just like, oh, Marmy! Oh, man. I just cried. My mouth was an upside down U shape. (laughs) For real. And right now I have tears on my face. It's just like the sense of loss or time just got away from me or whatever. Oh, it's like, I can't even. Good job.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going to say anything because my experience pretty much mirrored yours.
0: Oh my goodness me.
1: It is the wedding ceremony and Aunt March
0: arrives to give a gift
1: and a kind word. And I wasn't sure which was nicer.
0: Aunt March has arrived late because maybe she wasn't planning to come at all. And she had to steel herself to do it. There is a little moment where Aunt March sees a chicken sitting on the dinner table and has to cane it off the table. It's a tiny and frankly necessary bit of comedy after what I just went through. Out there on the landing with Marmy, (laughs) And I'm wondering if they did that scene with the chicken on purpose. Um, For an example, the movie Meet Joe Black had something very shocking happen. And then there was, I mean, had to be 13, 15 seconds of complete blackout while the audience had to digest what just happened. And I think they left it there for their own purposes, too, because you wouldn't even be able to hear the next scene because you are still trying to recombobulate yourself after what just happened. And so I'm wondering if that little chicken scene was put into like, okay, get your Kleenexes, wipe your eyes, girlfriend. We're going to move on, but I'll give you a second. And I literally think that's what that was. <laughs>
1: <laughs> the wedding ceremony is taking place inside the house. There's an arch of white roses and father is conducting the ceremony and he says, you may kiss your bride And Meg doesn't even kiss him She's like The first kiss has to go to Marmee
0: In the book it says That wasn't at all the thing Marmy wouldn't kiss her before Because she was worried about Messing her up And so now That it's done And you don't have to worry About messing me up I'm gonna give you a kiss That's so good And John doesn't mind He's the man He doesn't care
1: Yeah he knows he's got Lots of kisses in his future
0: And he does get the second one But in comes Aunt March And she has a statement to make In front of all these people "'I have always said that these pearls "'would go to the first engaged grandniece "'and if I must present them to a bride "'instead of a fiancé with a new ring "'sparkling on her finger,' That is no one's doing but my own. And she asks for Meg's forgiveness. How about that? Aunt March has a change of heart. Everybody seems to be growing up a little bit this year. (laughs) That's true. That's very true.
1: I love the way that she had to make it about herself, though, that she's got a great way of entering a room and just commanding it, right? So she walks in and she thumps her cane on the floor to get attention. And it worked. Like, oh, no, she's here. Now what's going to (laughs) happen?
0: There's a certain amount of confidence that if you just have it, you can just do whatever you want.
1: Yeah. And it's Angela Lansbury. She's awesome in this role. She's awesome in everything, right? Can we still watch Murder, She Wrote reruns?
0: (laughs) Can we still watch the Harvey Girls where she's way better than Judy Garland? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You're
1: going way back. So, of course, after the ceremony, there's a reception and it's outside of Orchard House.
0: It's beautiful. There's a wind blowing and there's
1: dancing. Everybody is having a big celebration.
0: I have to tell you, I absolutely love this. And I wish people just dance together more like this. Like, you don't have to find a reenactment to dance like this, which they do or they have recreated Meg's wedding some years at Orchard House. Not this year, though. Actually, I think they recreate. Anna's wedding Which is The sister That Meg was based on Of Louisa May Alcott's But they're not doing it This year sad, Oh As far as I can tell Well anyway um, Yeah I just wish There were more occasions That one could waltz <laughs> I think we're missing A big opportunity Maybe I will try to convince My husband to waltz Around the living room He would But he would roll his eyes And that would ruin the effect Would he waltz Or would it end up being Like a polka Whatever I wanted But oh. but, but there'd be a face on So you'd have to like Make him wear a bag Or something he is a perfectly delightful dancer uh with a big attitude problem no i'm just kidding (laughs) well and you know they don't play those kind of songs at weddings really anymore everybody wants to do the electric slide and the chicken chicken dance or whatever chicken dance is not the same can't you waltz to the chicken dance chicken dance is a four count
1: oh i'm like i'm so not musical
0: So what is a waltz? Just one, two, three, one, two, three.
1: So is there a contemporary song that has that, that you could think of? I mean, I'm sure they do it on Dancing with the Stars all the time, and I'm just not
0: recalling anything. Oh, that's true.
1: No, they do this close-up of the flowers, and the girls had had, all had sunflowers in their bouquets inside, and there was a white arch of roses, and once we get outside, there's a arrangement of bachelor buttons and either chamomiles or daisies. These are the same flowers we had at the very beginning in the opening sequence. Joe and Lori are dancing and they talk about her future and his relationship to her.
0: Joe looks over and Amy and Beth had been dancing together and Beth just has to sit down. It's too much for her. And she is obviously fading, even to our, we haven't seen her everyday eyes. And Joe is worried about that and says so to Lori, who says nonsense beth will dance at your wedding mine i'm gonna be the family's old maid every family should have one that's gonna be me that's fine we're good (laughs) you know (laughs) and he really does hint at his enduring love for her and she can't it's not right please let it go In not so many words. Mr. Lawrence in the book, in fact, told Lori, if you want to indulge in this sort of thing, Lori, you get one of these little girls to help you and I will be satisfied. And Lori, at this wedding, told his grandpa, I'll try, sir. So that's where his head is. I am literally going to make another shot today at this wedding. I'm going to see what happens. And again, seriously, but relatively gently and with no consequences, let down again. Yeah, she did it really nicely, I thought. But they have this good relationship
1: and it it showed in this particular scene because she can say, you know, no, no, we don't have that kind of relationship and we won't.
0: And there is a lot of eye contact. And then when she breaks it, there's a tiny bit of slow mojo. And then that's the end of the episode. This episode, man, a lot happened. We got into the second volume of Little Women. By the way, did you know there was a second volume? It's um, it was a sequel called Good Wives that happened before Meg's marriage. So we are over halfway through the original book. Um, Joe is finding out who she is. Meg on a new adventure. Beth, of course, we'll find out about where Beth is going in episode three on a journey of her own. We'll say, and <laughs> well. And Amy's nearly exactly the same uh, as she's ever been. Now, here's the thing. A grown-up actress playing Amy in part three is going to be, for the first time, age-appropriate. So I'm interested to see if my feelings about her change.
1: Mm -hmm. It's been bugging both of us for the last two episodes. that This older woman is playing a 12-year-old girl, and it's just not working. Of all the Louisa May Alcott characters in this story, and the... Alcott's themselves who do you think is most like they were in real life
0: um gosh it is kind of a toss-up between Joe and Marmee in my mind um but the depiction of father I understand why they didn't go further I do into Bronson Alcott territory because you would literally have to there's such a disconnect between the idealized father in Little Women and the reality of Brunson Alcott, that if you leaned too much toward the Brunson Alcott side, mm-hmm. you'd have to explain it. Yeah, and that's a whole other movie in itself. And this father, as we said earlier, is so much closer to Brunson Alcott than Louisa May Alcott's idealized father in the book, where, I mean, this is how he's described. The quiet scholar sitting among his books was the household conscience, anchor, and comforter. For to him, the busy, anxious women always turned in troublous times, finding him, in the truest sense of those sacred words, husband and father. Mm. Not really. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like, I mean, it sounds like Marmy's role here. Oh, dear. So he got a pass, Bronson Alcott, in history, didn't he? Mm-hmm. I think she took this time to write a father that she wished she had, maybe. I can't even explain it any other way. So I have to tell you... In all honesty, I am still not sure that I love this adaptation as a whole. I love Marmy. I love Joe. The jury, at least as far as I'm concerned, is still out on everything else, even though I did cry many times during this episode. So it's getting better. I'm getting more invested in the characters. But I will again say Joe and Marmy were the ones that made me cry. And those are the ones I like. So mm-hmm. oh, yeah, and I like those two and I like this Lori a lot
1: <laughs> and I like this Mr. Brooke too and the cinematography is really pretty so yeah I'm I'm gonna wait till after the third one to decide how I feel about it
0: okay so I do have a couple of links again I'm gonna send you to the transcript in case you need to verify anything people are going to a lot of trouble. <laughs> So that's good. They've got all the words, and then also, just for giggles, I have a link to the Ryan Goes anew scene from New Girl, where you can see why I might like John Brooke. <laughs> And then going back to the whole issue of Mary Ingalls, Laura Ingalls Wilder's sister, who did not become blinded with scarlet fever, but in fact with encephalitis, I will send you to the National Institute of Health government page on that. And then also the Land of the Leal lyrics. So you can see how mournful that song really is.
1: I'm going to put the opening song, Dance Caribe, the YouTube video in the show notes. So you can listen to the whole thing. If you haven't gone to the Little Women portion of the pbs.org website. I'm going to encourage you to go there because there's all kinds of special features, including a definitive list of all 21 adaptations of this story, (laughs) including there was an opera, a play, a ballet, and the 1978 TV version starring Susan Day from the Partridge family as Joe, Meredith Baxter Burney as Meg, uh, Eve Plum from the Brady Bunch as Bath, <laughs> William Shatner.
0: <laughs> I can't do it. <laughs> William Shatner as Professor Bear. <laughs> I am going to start drinking right now.
1: <laughs> there is a masterpiece podcast, and uh, I'll give you the link. There is one with an interview with Maya Hawk, who's Joe, and uh, Jonah Howard King who is Lori with his British accent. He is even more adorable. <laughs> so there's a podcast on that. And in the break, I looked up to see if I could make the limes before we record again. A lot of the recipes were, um, You know, they took a long time, weeks to cure. So I found one recipe that said one week minimum. So I'm going to use that one.
0: Well, thank you for joining us. I know we are all exhausted from watching the Royal Wedding yesterday, if you're listening on the Sunday (laughs) in which we have released this episode. So my goodness, it has been a weekend, hasn't it? Have a very good rest of the week. We will see you soon for the finale of Little Women. Thanks for listening. Bye.